South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. And we do have a couple of lines open on this uh, <laughs> nice Sunday morning. 70 degrees. Can you believe that on the fifth day of December? I would certainly take that over uh, 5 degrees or 15 degrees or even 35 degrees, but boy, this is just uh, kind of surprising that it has stayed so warm so long. We actually, last year we had our first freeze on the uh, on the 1st of December. That's here in San Antonio. We had some freezing weather in the hill country before that, but right now, looking a week down the road, looks like we're going to stay, well, we're going to cool off a little in the next couple of days, but nothing, nothing like severe weather, not looking at any frost uh, or anything like that in the foreseeable future but you know as we as we tick closer to january we get closer to that potential that's one of many things we can talk about but actually this choice of subjects is yours we're going to talk to kim and lisa that leaves a couple of open lines so if you dial quickly you can grab one of them you know the number 210-599-5555 and we'll just get started and say good morning kim good morning bob good morning Good morning. I think I missed, uh, got in before the beat there. Um, I had one question that I failed to ask you yesterday. Okay. Um, and it had to do with the seaweed. You were kind of talking about that a little bit. Right. Do, does the seaweed, um, do the plants, like, absorb the seaweed through their branches as well as their um, leaves? If they have real rough, thick bark, probably not. If they're still at the smooth bark sage on the, what's that? Specifically talking about plumerias. Oh, yes, boy, most definitely. They, yes, they definitely absorb through the stems, which is a good thing because by very far into the fall, they don't have many leaves left. But they, they may do an even better job of absorbing through the stems, actually, than they do through the leaves. So, yes, they do. That tissue is very capable of absorbing uh, all the good things out of liquid seaweed. Okay, and then I guess the follow up from that would be is there any benefit to the plant? to continue, because obviously there's other plants in, mixed in with them. Is there any benefit or maybe problem if they continue to get that seaweed treatment as they're going into dormancy? Uh, they, it's nothing but good. There's something like 96 different beneficial compounds in the seaweed, and they will benefit from seaweed 365 days a year, and I don't know of any plant out there, some more than others, but... Uh, um, I, just everything that grows <laughs> loves liquid seaweed. I have to say that uh, uh, one friend told me the only problem that she had found, she thought that the seaweed made some of her plants a little bit more palatable to the deer, or at least brought the deer in. But uh, that's that that's the only negative I can think of. It's also, if you close your eyes, it's kind of like taking a little vicarious trip down to South Padre Island or something like that <laughs> when you're spraying it around. What, exactly. Uh, some people love it. Some people are like, ah, what did you do? I'm like, <laughs> but, um, you know, and I was reading something, and I don't know if you know anything about this. They were talking about, because I do live down here on the island, I do not have to worry about deer or anything like that. <laughs> That's but good. They talked about going, like, on the on the coast and collecting seaweed and placing it in a bucket, rinsing it well to get some of the salt, you know, get the salt off of it, placing it in a in a bucket filling that like five gallon bucket full of water and then closing it for several weeks. Um, and then when you, then you, it, it turns into like a slurry. And I guess 
That's how you could make your own seaweed. Have you ever heard of that? Or have you? I'm sure you have. Well, uh, you know, people people do many variations of creating your own. Um, The problem that you can have, especially if you're closing it up tightly at all, is that uh, it can go anaerobic on you, and anaerobic means stinks. And so I would not leave it closed for several weeks, maybe two or three days. And the other thing is that there's no such thing as bad seaweed, but there are seaweeds, kelps especially, that grow in warmer water, and then there are kelps that grow in the deeper oceans in very, very cold water. A lot of research has gone into which kelps contain the most beneficial compounds for plants, and it's absolutely the cold water kelps. Uh, Most of the liquid seaweed that you buy, it's probably harvested off the coast of Newfoundland or, um, you know, somewhere with with very, very chilly water. And for whatever reason, you know, seawater just contains every element, contains huge numbers of compounds, and uh, uh, the seaweed takes it out of the seawater. But the, the cold water kelps are by far the best at processing and storing the nutrients. So, what you save in money by collecting your own seaweed, um, I think you kind of miss out on a lot of the benefits. I suspect that the nutrient content of coastal seaweed is probably maybe 30% of what it is of the cold water kelps. And it's not an expensive product, especially considering that you're just using a tablespoon or two per gallon. The thing that I have, I've heard people do that I think is probably, if you want to collect Uh, seaweed off the beach and wash it very very thoroughly use it as a mulch in the beds shred it up a little bit if you can and use it that way but trying to make a liquid product out of our gulf coast seaweed is uh, not probably the best idea (laughs) we'll just leave it at that that's that's what i needed to hear i've been really happy with the results i'm getting from the medina seaweed so i'll continue to use that Stewart's a real stickler for quality, and uh, you can bet he's out shopping for the best quality at the best price. And uh, I've always I've used his. I've used two or three other. Uh, there's also a fish and seaweed blend out there, but just for straight seaweed, liquid seaweed, I, Medina's the best that I have found. This new fertilizer that he's, uh, I guess he's been making it for a year now, probably about how long I've been using it, is his uh, liquid fish blend that has a lot of seaweed in it. And boy, that stuff just magical in my greenhouse. Yeah, I, I totally agree. When you very first mentioned that, I grabbed up what I could and have been using it too, and I'm seeing very similar results. Very good. Well, it's always a pleasure to hear about success, and uh, you get out and have a wonderful warm weekend, <laughs> and uh, we'll look forward to our next visit, Kim. Thanks for calling this morning. Bye-bye. Goodbye. All right, Lisa's up next. Good morning, Lisa. Hi, good morning, Bob. How are you? Off to a very good start. It's a nice morning out there. It's My my day feels like half done. I came in early. I've got uh, about a dozen poinsettias dressed to deliver today, and bows tied for a bunch more. So uh, my fingers have been busy since pretty early this morning. So I guess that's a good thing. Hopefully my brain's wide awake by now when I have to think hard. Well, I'm getting a, a later start than you, but I have a couple of questions about trees. Um, okay. First question is, with the weather being a little bit warmer right now, is this a safe time for me to have my oak trees trimmed? And second question is, is it too early for me to uh, cut back my uh, crepe myrtle? 
it's a little early on the crepe myrtles. I, you know, if you really need to do it, go ahead and get it done because we are going to cool off. The crepe myrtles have dropped most of their leaves already. So if you can put it off two or three weeks, I would. But if not, do it today. It's a fine time to trim uh, oak trees. Just remember on the live oaks and on the red oaks that every wound needs to be sealed, no matter how big or how small. There are a bunch of lazy tree trimmers out there that will say, oh, if it's, uh, if it's under half an inch, you don't have to seal it. What they're saying is I'm too lazy to do it. What the Forest Service and everybody I talk to says is, you know, any wound above ground on the tree should be sealed. Now, it doesn't have to be pruning paint. It can be latex paint. It can be can be fingernail polish because it only needs to keep the wound sealed for about eight or nine days. It seems that after that, even large wounds have sealed off to where the beetles cannot introduce the spores for oak wilt into the tree. So, not anything that has to last a long time. And obviously, the smaller the wound is, the faster it's going to seal off. But it's just playing Russian roulette, you know. Uh, the, if you're you're out there cutting trees without sealing the wounds. You just have to hope that you don't have any beetles who have visited oak wilt, uh, dead oak wilt, or dead red oaks, which is uh, where they pick up the spores. And one of the oak wilt conferences I went to a few years ago, they did some trapping on the east coast of the beetles, and they found that uh, with a little bit of wind blowing, that the beetles would move up to 15 miles a day. So that means it doesn't have to be a dead red oak in your neighborhood. It could be a dead red oak in the hill country, and the wind could blow those beetles carrying the spores of the disease in. So why risk it? Just uh, just, just coat. Uh, be sure whoever's doing the trimming just seals every wound, no matter how large, how small. Okay. Thank you so much, Bob. I appreciate it. It's always my pleasure, Lisa. It's good to talk to you. Thank you. All right, let's get a break done, and then we'll take some more phone calls. I get to talk about the cedar eater. Talk about people that do it right the first time, every time. That's the cedar eater of Texas, and gosh, they've been, how many years have they been bitter? It's probably 25 or 30 or so. They have literally cleared tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of acres up in the hill country, getting rid of that cedar that just chokes your land. You know, the what we call cedar, the ash juniper. The leaves collect the first half inch of rain that falls. It never gets to the ground underneath. They are so dense, virtually no light gets to the ground underneath, and that suppresses your native grasses, which increases erosion. That suppresses your wildflowers. All the good things don't get the light they need to grow and prosper. And plus, that water doesn't get down into the aquifers, and Lord knows we need every drop we can possibly get going into our hill country aquifers as well as the Edwards aquifers. So removing the cedar is just a great thing to do, and nobody does it Better than the cedar eater. No bulldozing, no burning, no environmental destruction. You end up with a nice mulch on the surface of the soil as well. They also have services to take down big trees that might have died from the freeze or of drought or of oak wilt. By the way, there's no danger of spreading the disease that way. And they even have a machine that takes care of mesquite. What more could you ask from one wonderful company? North Texas and South Texas offices, both offices through the same number, 210-745-2743. That's 210 210- 275 I'm sorry writing it down here 7452743 South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071 All right back to gardening we started the show with a couple of ladies now it's time for a couple of gentlemen it'll be Thomas and Mike starting this segment out and Thomas is up first good morning Thomas 
Oh, good morning here, Bob. <laughs> well, good morning. I live in San Antonio. Boy, isn't that the truth. <laughs> I was looking, uh, my friends up in Wyoming, I think they have nine degrees this morning, so uh, other parts of the country are a little chilly. Okay. Well, um, I was looking at uh, Fanex, and they have some uh, bare-rooted strawberries. So is this, mm-hmm. can you give me some basics of uh, strawberry planting? I've never done it before. Well, strawberries want soil that drains well. That's why so much of it is grown down. So many of them are grown down in the sandy soils down around uh, Poteet. Any soil that drains well will be fine, though. You just you don't want anything that is, um, you know, it's going to hold much moisture. If it is a sort of a sandy soil mix or if you're mixing your own, you might put in some uh, green sand, maybe a little bit of lava sand. But long as you have soil that drains well, and sometimes that means uh, putting in a raised bed if you're in a heavy clay soil. But strawberries are easy, and bare root is certainly the cheap way. They're probably charging a whole 75 cents a piece for them. Um, you plant them uh, just as you would any other plant. You don't want to get what's called the crown, the point that the leaves originate. You don't want that to be buried. That should just be right at ground level. And uh, October, November, I guess even into December when it's this warm, are by far the best months to plant so that you can get a good crop in the spring. The other thing I would tell you about planting strawberries is plant lots of them because an individual strawberry plant doesn't produce a lot of berries. So I, as much as I love strawberries, I think it's a waste of time to plant less than a dozen or two strawberries if you really like them. But you can plant them oh, six to eight inches apart and uh, so they don't take up too much room in the garden. You can put them in rows or you can just kind of checkerboard them through. Whatever works for you, um, I, as I do most things in the garden, I amend the soil a little bit. I'll put in a little good organic fertilizer, maybe a little bit of zeolite or azomite, and maybe a little bit of uh, uh, green sand or something like that, depending on what my specific soils are. But planting strawberries is uh, really pretty easy to do, and it certainly does produce delicious rewards. Well, the main ones, uh, they have so many different varieties different websites and yeah uh, if you yeah if um and i'm not sure which one uh, mark and mike have over there Uh, don't worry if some of the varieties don't seem real familiar or if you don't find a lot of information you don't really want the varieties that they sell in the grocery store because they have to be nice, hard, rock-hard berries so they can ship them without damage. The really good varieties like sequoias are a soft, delicious berry, but you'll never see them in the grocery store because uh, because they're soft. <laughs> so don't, don't worry too much about varieties. Uh, go on taste when you're reading reviews on them, but uh, quinault, sequoia, there are a bunch of different good ones out there. I haven't run into a bad strawberry yet. Oh, well, okay. It's easier than I thought, then. Okay. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And, you know, follow up uh, with watering. You want to water real thoroughly when you water. When that soil is good and dry on the surface, water again. Like most things that go into my garden, I like I say, I like putting uh, some dry organic fertilizer in before I plant. That'll carry them for the first couple of months, and after that I'm going to follow up every couple of weeks with just a liquid has to grow or the fish blend that they make, and that really produces a strong plant. A strong plant 
is going to give you the maximum number of berries. The one critter that likes to get after strawberries is the pill bug, and uh, they can they can damage a lot of berries. So I use a, a non-toxic product called Sluggo, S-L-U-G-G-O, Sluggo Plus, and that takes care of the snails, the slugs, and the pill bugs, and yet it's harmless to people and pets. Okay. Then when it freezes, do you do anything? You know, a typical South Texas freeze, I never say normal because nothing's normal in Texas, but weather down to 20 degrees, I would have no concerns about. If it's going to get down into the teens or lower, especially if it's going to be prolonged, yeah, I'd probably put just a single row of, uh, or single layer of row cover over them, but uh, very rarely do we get to that point. Last year was the exception. Everybody remembers what a terrible February we had plant-wise last year. But uh, our typical Texas winter, you won't have to do anything except uh, water and feed periodically. Oh, great. Okay. Looks like I got some work to do. <laughs> that sounds good. Well, it's <laughs> once again, it's it's one of those jobs that done properly can uh, can lead to immense rewards. And uh, there's just uh, there's just very few things in the world better than fresh strawberries and blackberries and things like that from your own garden and. Uh, you won't want to settle for the store-bought stuff ever again once you've grown your own. Okay. Great. Thank you. Appreciate your my, information again. My pleasure, Thomas. I appreciate the call this okay. morning. Thank you, sir. Okay. Thank you. Okay. All right. Uh, next up is Mike. <laughs> Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Bob. Oh, Good Charlie morning, wanted sir. me to ask you, where is our sunshine? <laughs> About the same place it usually is. It's just hiding behind those clouds, but... Uh, uh, at least it wasn't foggy this morning, and I think they're expecting this to burn off by the middle of the day. So it's the only thing wrong with having that sun out. It it may get downright warm this afternoon, like up in the mid-upper 70s, which is pretty pretty warm for early December. But uh, So I, I wouldn't object too much to that cloud cover, but sun will be around for too long. Yeah, there you go. Well, Bob, <clears throat> I'm going to ask you, uh, I think it was last week, a man had called in was asking about his carpet grass uh, yellowing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm looking out here, and I said, golly, mine's yellowing, too. Uh, there's some of it that's uh, nice and green, uh, but uh, a good part of it has a, a yellow stems and different patches. And what in the world uh, can I do about that? Well, Especially if the blades are yellow, but the little veins look a little darker green. This is what we call chlorosis, which means literally lack of chlorophyll, and it is typically caused by lack of nitrogen, lack of iron, um, lack of you know some of the different micronutrients, or it can be that you have um, the things are drying out too much. It can also be that you have domes, little columns of caliche that you can't see that are coming closer to the surface in certain parts of your yard. When you get that caliche up there, it's very, very alkaline. That puts the iron in a form that plants have difficulty absorbing. So there are a lot of different things that can cause the yellowing. Typically, I would just, I would water you know very thoroughly and deeply this time of year you don't have to water as often but 
In the 70s, you're probably going to need to water at least every 10 days to 2 weeks, but water really thoroughly and deeply. If you haven't fertilized in the last 60 days, put out a good organic fertilizer. If possible, use one like Medina's that has some extra green sand in it. And uh, if the yellowing persists, then you can follow up with uh, something like azomite or a little green sand, get a few more extra minerals in there. And uh, that should, won't change things a lot in the fall, but as the grass starts to grow out again in the spring, it'll be a much, much darker green. Hmm. Azomite. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that a liquid or a granule or what? It's, it's more or less a, it's, it's like a coarse powder. It's about the uh, consistency of, um, oh, let's say cornmeal. It's uh, it's one of the most amazing things. It's uh, it's one of what we just is in general group and what we call rock powders. It's a it's a material that is mined that is quarried, but it has you know I was talking about how many different beneficial compounds are in liquid seaweed with an earlier caller. This has so many different minerals. I was at a trade show one time at Usher Trade Show. And uh, the fella had a, a chart up there, and it was a piece of uh, poster board turned on its side, and it must have had a hundred lines on there of different beneficial, especially minerals and uh, mineral compounds in it. And quite frankly, I've always been a green sand fan, but uh, when I started using azomite, I'm finding that it gives the same results much more quickly. Unfortunately, it's a little bit more pricey than green sand, but uh, if it's an area that I'm in a hurry to have it greened up, um, I'll use some azomite and then maybe follow it up with a little green sand for uh, long-lasting results. But not put them both on at the same time. Oh, wouldn't hurt. Wouldn't hurt. It wouldn't hurt anything but the pocketbook. <laughs> but uh, yeah, if I was doing one or the other for your particular situation, I probably, um, and depending on how much of it you need, I'd, I'd probably start with the azomite. And uh, um, it's it, it's just been we've used it in containers as well as on things in the ground with um, really pretty amazing results. Now, you need to watch your grass carefully because the other thing we see a bunch of in the fall is brown patch fungus, and that starts with yellowing, but then it's followed by the grass actually turning brown. And if you pull up on the leaf blades, they separate from the runner, and the whole little bottom of the blade looks like it's rotted off. So if it's just uh, if it's a good, strong-looking grass but, but light in color, either light green to yellow, uh, then that's what you can probably correct with the uh, fertilizer, the azomite, the thorough watering. Uh, if you actually have brown patch started, and, and when we have cool nights and warm days, that's the time if you're going to have brown patch, that's when it's going to show up, and we're going to treat that with cornmeal. So be sure what you're looking at uh, isn't brown patch, it is just a nutrient problem. Okay, do you carry the azomite, the green sand both? We do. Okay, I'll have to come see you. But watering also is important because I've been deficient in water, watering my grass. It takes uh, one hour, makes me one inch of <laughs> right. water. And I have so many, uh, well, maybe uh, uh, 50 by 50 and another 50 by 100 and another 50 by 50. So it takes uh, probably a day and a half or two you know, once an hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have to get on that also. Well, I'll uh, look into the Asian. <laughs> there, the the a lot of my friends would tell you that just means you have too much grass. 
you could, if you had ground cover or if you had something else in there, you wouldn't have to water it nearly as often. I think everybody needs to have some grass for their pets, for their kids or grandkids. Just, you know, most every yard needs some grass in it, but a lot of us have, uh, have more grass than we really should have and we save a lot of money when we start replacing the grass with things that don't require as much water um, or you can be like me you can just I, I never water my grass I'm on a well up in an area where we don't have a huge amount of water so I tend to I probably have more horse herb and a few other weeds around and I have a, a green yard when it rains and a browner yard when it doesn't but if you're if you're looking to have a really spectacular yard reduce the amount of grass you have to take care of and it'll be a lot easier keep to keep it looking perfect well maybe I should build some more buildings I either build some more buildings or some more garden area there you go I have another question here on uh, Amanda V I mentioned this last week to you uh, they're not real cold hardy, are they? Below freezing, no. They will go down right to freezing without damage, although the blooming drops off a bit uh, as we get, oh, you know, down in the 40s and 50s. But uh, freezing weather is hard on uh, Alamandas and Mandavias and, uh, you know, little Diplodinias, which are closely related. Um, so, yeah, you want to you wanna protect them if you can. Well, they're supposed to be diplodemias, and I mentioned it to you last week, but I didn't right. ask you. Uh, they're probably seven, eight feet tall, long, uh-huh. skinny but long, and going up the wall. Uh, can I cut those back and then try to protect them? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, absolutely. I would, you know, I would leave them as long for as long as possible because I've seen them bloom all the way up into January. But when we are likely to get that first heavy frost or the first hard freeze, yeah, at that point, it's just fine to cut them back, and uh, it will certainly make them a little bit easier to cover. Well, I'll try to hide them back here in the corner and hold off cutting them back as long as I can, but I I just wondered about cutting them back so much. Well, you you can certainly do so. Obviously, the more you cut them back, the more you're going to take away wood that would have blooms on it. And keep in mind, too, as we've been talking a good deal recently, spraying regularly with liquid seaweed, uh, and I like seaweed-molasses combination, that will make things more cold-hardy. If you get started early into it, you can make things as much as 10 degrees more cold-hardy before they start showing damage. So uh, there are things you can do to help that uh, diplodenia, mandavia, whichever it is to help it go longer into the year and uh, many years you know it'll mean it'll go all winter long without any cold damage okay well i'll try that out and i thank you very much oh it's always a pleasure mike appreciate the call you get out and have a great sunday thank you bye-bye thank you sir goodbye all right let's get a break done here and we get to talk about green grow organics and sam sitterly Again, it's just fun being able to tell you about people who do a good job of helping people grow things better. And, you know, I talk about people that provide products. I talk about people that provide services. And Sam's one of those that provides, you'd have to describe his business mostly as a consulting service. But I'll tell you, he does does consulting and some application. He just knows plants. He knows soils. He understands the importance of microbial life in the soil. And everything he does is organic. 
he's been doing this for 30 years or so. I'd say he really knows what he's doing. He's probably the leading expert, at least in this part of Texas, probably a much wider area than that on compost teas. And compost teas are a way that you can address a lot of problems and you can prevent a lot of problems. He can help you out with exactly the right kind of fertilizer and the right timing, and he can advise you on just about every issue that you may be having in your yard. And like I say, when it comes to fertilizing compost tea application, he and his crews actually do a great deal of that. Almost every day here at the nursery, we have people in just singing his praises, saying, my yard looks so much better since uh, Sam's been consulting with me. If you would like a little help, uh, check out his website, greengroworganics.com. If it looks like it's good for you, call him, set up an appointment. Be sure you understand any charges up front, but set up some consultation time and see how he might help you have that greenest and best yard in the neighborhood. That's Sam Sitterly, Green Grow Organics. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. My next two callers are going to be EJ and Bernie. EJ is up first. Good morning. Good morning, Mr. Bob. Good morning, sir. Oh, you know, just out here feeding all the money pits on the farm. (laughs) Yep, I know the feeling. I've got a a short and sweet one. So I planted some sage this year. A couple of them were given to me as transplants. They're doing good. I've got a couple of Mexican sages, and I just bought a couple of the woody Texas purple sages. Is there anything other than just fertilizing and caring for them in the wintertime? Do you got to trim back any of the old growth or anything like that? Uh, Not really. Um, The purple sages, you know, there are many different varieties, everything from a native one that gets stringy and 8 to 10 feet tall to some of the really compact bushy ones to white flowered ones to super dark ones there there's lots of different forms and those are technically called ceniso they're not uh, which of course is Spanish for ashes because the great foliage and they're just woody shrubs uh, they want to be out in the full sun they want to be watered thoroughly when they're watered but uh, you know allowed to get moderately dry between waterings but the pruning is strictly up to you and they are almost totally cold hardy I don't think I saw any Sinisa that suffered any damage even you know down in the single digits last winter so uh, those guys just keep an eye on them and if we go for a month without rain probably give them a good drink the so-called Mexican sage or Mexican bush sage is a salvia, salvia leucantha, a true sage. And it is not quite as cold-hardy. Uh, there's more than one form. There's a form that has uh, oh, sort of a purple bloom uh, with the white coming out of the center. And then there's one that's sort of uh, purple with the magenta coming out of the center. Both of them are absolutely beautiful. They're going to grow maybe waist-high, but they're what I would call woody perennials. They can get a little bit leggy. It doesn't hurt to trim them. I would do it in early spring if you need to trim them. But, again, as long as you're getting good, bright sunlight, they're one of the best and easiest perennials you'll ever have in your have in your garden. Awesome. Yeah, that was that was pretty much it. I didn't know anything about them. I know that the purple sage I've got is native purple sage. I got yeah. it from a local nursery out here that... That's what she does is native plants. So, well, no, that it's was it. I don't one that coming back because they get kind of funky and leggy in the winter time. But well, and if you uh, on that one especially, you don't ever want to take more than about a third of the wood that is leaf bearing. Don't want to take more than about a third of that off at any one time. That can cause some root stress. So, but you will probably. That's one you're going to have to 
prune almost every year to keep it really thick and pretty. If you're wanting one that's less maintenance, there are some selective varieties. They're still the same hardy plant, but uh, they're much more compact in their growth. Uh, there's one called uh, El Dorado, another one called Silverado, another one called Desperado, another one simply called Compact Texas Sage. There are a bunch of and I, I hate to say improved because my native friends uh, or native plant-loving friends say, oh, there's nothing improved about them. They're just different. But uh, they are more compact and take less pruning, and they, they are still beautiful plants. But they're among the hardiest. They're almost totally deer-resistant, and as uh, long as you have them in the sun, that's that's the one thing about uh, the all of your different sinises. They do demand absolutely full sun. With the other salvias, uh, which are commonly called sages, we have varieties that grow in the shade, have varieties that grow in the sun. Uh, the Mexican bush sage is one of those sun lovers. Right on. Um, and I'll tell you, I bought them off of her for a dollar for a gallon plant because they were looking rough, and Super Thrive <laughs> is a real deal, buddy. Well, it's a real deal. You signed yourself up for some maintenance, but at least you got a good price to start with. They, they come out, they're looking great. A little bit of Super Thrive, a little bit of liquid seaweed, and they're yeah. happy little plants now in the yard. Very good. So, thank you, Bob. You have a wonderful day. I'll quit keeping you. You, uh, you do the same, and I'll look forward to the next visit, EJ. Thank you, sir. Uh, Bernie is up next. Good morning, Bernie. Well, Bernie has dropped off. All right. Well, I tell you what, I think I'll just do my last break of the show, and then we'll come back. Do have a couple of open lines, and you can grab one if you like. You know the number, 210-599-5555. And I'll just go ahead and tell you about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems, because I love talking about those folks, because they... They just make your life so much better, so much easier, and I know a lot of people worry about their roofs. You wouldn't be hearing, you know, 10 million ads on the radio for roofing companies if it weren't a big topic for people always worrying about damage to the roofs and fixing their roofs and all that. Well, if you get a Southwest Metal Roofing Systems roof on your home, you can stop all those worries. You'll start saving money on your insurance and on your utility bills. You'll have a great-looking roof at a very, very reasonable price. I love telling stories when we built a new groundwater district office up in Bernie. I said, uh, I want a Southwest Metal Roofing Systems roof on this building. The architect and the builder both said, oh, no, that would be way, way too expensive. And I said, you call you call this number, 822-6868, and get an estimate from them. And both of them came back to me and said, wow, I didn't know a great roof could be that inexpensive. Southwest Metal Roofing Systems does it right at a very reasonable price. And you have a lot of choices. Too. If you don't like the look of standing seam metal, well, they have roofs that look like slate or ceramic tile or shake shingles. If you like the standing seam but not the bright colors, well, you can do like I did. You can have a colored roof. We have uh, I have a red roof on my home, uh, kind of a tribute to an old uncle who always wanted uh, a red roof on the house. But uh, just lots of choices, all the same great material. All of them going to save you a great deal of energy. They're just the last roof you'll ever put on your home. Find out what I'm talking about. Give them a call, 210-822-6868. That's 210-822-6868 for Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Well, Bernie got back through after his phone cut off, or her phone cut off. You never know with Bernie. could go either way. But anyway, so we'll make Bernie first, and then it will be Barbara and Faye. Good morning, Bernie. Good morning. I'm a Bernie girl. Yes, <laughs> yes ma'am. <laughs> a, a Bernice, I presume. Yes, it is. 
Very um, good. Okay, my question is, is something you addressed yesterday about the ants, and you said that they aren't, they're not going to do the come and get it and the other, and I missed what your solution was on ants. Well, it depends. There are over a hundred different species of ants we have here in Texas, some of which are a problem, some of which um, really probably actually do more good out there, and some of them, even though they don't necessarily get, do good things, they're important food for reptiles and things like that. So uh, it just depends on the type of ant as to whether you need to do anything or what to do. Now, what we were dealing with yesterday were these things called the leaf cutter ants, which are top of my book for real problem causing ants other people might tell you wood eating ants and things like that but the leaf cutters will strip the foliage off of plants they have a big underground chamber where they take those leaves and then the ants actually feed on a fungus that grows on the leaves so if you're fighting the leaf cutters there really is no bait and uh, boy they've tried just about everything in the world I've had some people that treat it all around the openings with spinosad the most consistent way of controlling them that uh, most people have reported to me is flooding the mounds uh, with water with a little bit of orange oil in it and that seems to give the most consistent results now one other thing about leaf cutters and they go after a lot of trees including fruit trees and crepe myrtles and some other things where they're going after a single trunk plant you can stop them you don't put uh, there's a product called Tanglefoot you don't put it directly on the bark of the tree it, it can cause some weird things happen to the bark but you simply wrap the bark with either a layer of aluminum foil or plastic wrap or something like that and then you put like about a two inch wide just a, a strip of it it's this stuff is it's just the stickiest nastiest stuff you've ever seen but the ants can't walk across it so that's one way to protect your trees but they also go after bedding plants like begonias and roses and things that that doesn't work on when that happens we usually have to start following the trail back to where the mound is and try to attack them at that point oh okay uh, the, what about firing? Can I still use the come and get it for them yes. in the winter? Yes, the, the come and get it will work very well on fire ants. And also, uh, I don't usually use it on harvester ants because, again, they're, they're an important food stuff. But if the harvester ants become a problem, uh, the come and get it will get them as well. It's important that you don't disturb the mounds. You, you want the ants to kind of find the come and get it by accident so that they're not associating you with the product and therefore not going to pick it up so I generally just sprinkle it out either early morning or evening when the ants are active and uh, the instructions say it'll take up to a week to kill out a fire ant mound I find it usually works overnight oh okay yeah okay I've been sprinkling the mound so I mm -hmm. need to not sprinkle the mound well if okay. you sprinkle it lightly uh, it won't hurt but uh, don't stir it up don't you know don't be so uh, vigorous with your application that the ants come <laughs> boiling out. That will put them on their defensive, but uh, uh, I just, you know, sprinkling. It doesn't take a lot of it because it's what we call a preferred food stuff, and the ants that are out collecting the food take it down and feed it to the queen before they taste it, and once you kill the queen, the whole mound's going to die out. Now, we do have problems because uh, we're finding what they call super mounds, they can be mounds that have eight or ten queens in them and can have over a million ants in one mound. Uh, it takes a little bit longer to get them under control, but uh, come and get it.
did, it still works well. Okay. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, you get out and have a good Sunday, Bernie. I appreciate the call this morning. Thank you. <laughs> Thank Goodbye. you. Bye-bye. Certainly. Bye. All right. Uh, Barbara is up next. Good morning, Barbara. Hello, sir. Thanks for taking my call. I appreciate you. Thank you for so calling. Much. I well, appreciate I just it. have kind of a dual problem. I really don't. Um, I have raised bed gardens. I live uh, in San Antonio near the medical center. So I put okay. onion sets in, you know, cabbage and cauliflower. So my first problem was I'd go out there and everything was getting munched to pieces. So I would love to know how to control that thing that because it's raised bed and I have some light fencing around it. Now it's like some kind of animal is digging everything up and flinging the onion sets everywhere. And I'm like, it looks like bombs are being dropped out there. And I'm like, what's happening? Well, the, the most common culprit is deer. And you have, unfortunately, we've got deer in the medical center area now. And the well, deer... Well, it's in the backyard do... behind the fence. It's in the back, you know, the backyard. So it's, it's some kind of critter. Like well, in in that case, um, I, my suspicion would be possibly raccoons, possibly squirrels. If it's happening at night, it's probably raccoons or possums. If it's happening during the day, it's probably squirrels. There are some repellents you can put out. Um, the There's a, a product called blood meal, which is actually a good fertilizer, and yet it's very repellent to uh, squirrels and possums and skunks. And lots of troublesome things that may come around. So that's probably where I would try to start. As a repellent, uh, you may end up, um, I pretty much have live traps set almost all the time because uh, you, you haul off one bunch of them and another bunch of them move in. But uh, squirrels, squirrels and raccoons are at the top of my list for things that will get after them. Now, if it was just digging, 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 uh, out in the country, I'd say armadillos, but once again, you're probably not going to have them in the backyard in the medical center <laughs> area. But the thing about deer is deer can't bite things off cleanly. They don't have incisors that they can snip something off, so they grab it and jerk it. And a lot of people think that they are pulling things up and throwing them around, but they're just trying to get a taste of them. So uh, I'm I'm glad you don't probably have them in your backyard but unless you've got a fence that's about seven feet tall they can come in and eat and go out in the middle of the night when you don't see them so i'd be looking for little footprints and things but the good thing is that the uh, the blood meal is also fairly repellent to the deer other things you can use include just a very hot pepper spray and they make some actual repellents that will get most all mammals unfortunately most of the repellents are kind of stinky but uh the other thing beyond blood meal is just make make some super hot pepper spray you can buy the hottest peppers you can find at the grocery store or something like that blend that up and spray it on the foliage and uh they'll only take one bite of it that is so helpful is that uh will that work on the cop the broccoli and the cabbages because some eating them down you know off the stem but the other well, thing is well, big deep holes are getting dug 
Well, that's probably squirrels. And uh, the hot oh. pepper, um, the, the other thing that you get on broccoli and cauliflower is a little green worm called a cabbage worm. On those, we oh. usually use a, non, a non-toxic spray called BT or Bacillus thuringiensis. But uh, okay. the, the problem with broccoli and cauliflower is the leaves are very, very resistant to anything beating up or anything really soaking in so if you're going to be spraying those you probably want to put a little soap or a little bit of surfactant in but uh, um, those are the the most common critters that um, that will get after them Uh, if you've got another question i'll get don to put you on hold because i have to get out right on the second for news and i have to say this is ktsa radio in beautiful san antonio texas South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. And Don's Health Indian is pretty much sitting there looking at an empty forward phone board right now. I know it's a busy time of year. Everybody's got lots of things to do, but uh, (laughs) I tell you what, most of the time I hear about how hard it is to get through. So if you've got that question you've been meaning to ask, uh, you've got you've got an opportunity right now that you probably get right through, and you know the number two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. I don't mind taking a minute here to tell you about some of the things that uh, I would be doing. In fact, some of the things that are on my list if I get home before dark. Uh, number one, if you haven't fertilized this fall, it's really important. Your grass, your trees, your shrubs, your ground covers, everything out there will be more cold hardy if you get some good organic fertilizer on. And uh, I have, a, have a, a kitty cat here, too, that says she could use a little attention. But your yard needs some attention, too. And uh, any of your good organic products, Medina, Maestro Grow, Nature's Creation, all of those will really help both in increasing cold hardiness and giving your plants the opportunity to store those nutrients they need to put on good, strong growth in the spring. On the pots, I usually go to a liquid product, again, organic or natural, but it really does make a difference. And uh, anybody who who's really been doing it for a while will tell you things really started looking better when they started fertilizing a little bit more often. And I have to say, there are still some pretty warm weather things out there like begonias and impatiens. Lots of them are getting a little tired looking. The periwinkles especially, they really don't like it chilly. And if you're thinking about replacing things and you want things to be absolutely beautiful as we move closer to the Christmas and New Year's holidays, well, there are some great choices. Pansies and Johnny Jump Ups, which are little uh, dwarf pansies, those things are going to bloom virtually every day of the winter. They don't care how cold it is. In fact, the colder they get on the pansies, the bigger the flowers get. So they love a sunny spot and a chilly day. You can also plant uh, things like snapdragons in stock. Boy, if you're looking for fragrant stock and alyssum are at the top of the list. Both of those are things that bloom through the fall, grow through the winter, and then bloom again in the spring. Or if it stays, if it stays as mild as it is, they'll just continue to bloom all winter long. Same thing is true for uh, dianthus, for petunias. These are all plants that are cold hardy, but uh, the buds may be affected if we get a bunch of frost. But pansies and yawning jump ups doesn't seem to bother them at all. On the other hand, if you've got shady areas, cyclamen, the cyclamen are absolutely gorgeous this year. And there are several new varieties out there. I mean, cyclamen used to basically be just, you know, pretty and just three or four colors of them. 
Nowadays, there must be about six or eight different colors. There are dwarf or mini, mini cyclamen, as they call them, which have smaller flowers, but about three times as many flowers. There are ones with frilly flowers, as well as the standard cyclamen blooms. And there are even variegated varieties of cyclamen out there. And all these things are great with uh, bright shade and also will pretty much bloom every day of the winter for you. Now, if we get another one of those frigid winters like last winter, you may have to give them a little bit of protection. But down into at least the upper teens, um, it doesn't seem to bother them at all. You can also plant some beautiful foliage plants like ornamental cabbage, ornamental kale, dusty miller. These are all things that just, there's just no excuse to have a drab yard. A lot of people think, well, when cold weather gets there, all the flowers go away. We probably have more different cool weather flowers that we can put out to give you a really beautiful landscape, even than we have in lots of the hot weather. So don't put up with the drab yard. And most of your nursery is going to be really well stocked on, uh, you know, on these things. <laughs> it's just going to be a great day to get out and plant. It's going to be a comfortable day. And if you're like me, you'll be doing it in shorts and a t-shirt. It's, uh, it's that kind of... <laughs> that kind of December weather so far. Other things, of course, your vegetable garden. It's one place that I really, I will caution you about a couple of things. First of all, uh, like, like flowers, there are probably more vegetables we can plant in the winter than there are in the summer. And if you're setting out plants, if you're setting out things that have been outside and been hardened off, all you really need to do is plant them, fertilize them, water them, and let them grow. We're talking about things like broccoli and cauliflower and kale. Most of your leafy things like spinach uh, you can get as little plants and set out. Certainly strawberries we were talking with the caller about earlier. Uh, those are all things that you set out as plants. The, where we have to be a little bit more circumspect is in planting things from seed. And that may be, well, you can actually plant spinach from seed. I plant both. You can plant uh, many leafy greens like mustard and uh, collards and chard. All of these things can be planted from seed. And then there are all your little root crops like uh, radishes and beets and carrots and turnips. All of those things are planted from seed. But the thing to remember is that plants, the even these plants that are normally cold hardy, they don't come up uh, already primed with antifreeze. It's like getting a car and you have to wait two weeks before you put your antifreeze in. Those little seedlings are susceptible to cold damage for the first couple of weeks. So if you're planting from seed this late in the season, uh, if the things start coming up and then all of a sudden we're predicted to have frost, you will need to cover them for the first week or two. After that, they will have built up their antifreeze, so to speak, and they'll be just as cold hardy as if you'd set the plants out. But keep that in mind, especially on your leafy greens. I love bok choy, I, just a lot of those things. But uh, when they first come up, they're going to be a little sensitive. The final thing that I'll tell you for doing in the garden right now, planting onions. Now, Unfortunately, a lot of people make the mistake of using the terms onion plants and onion sets synonymously. They're not the same. They're two entirely different things. An onion set is a little plant, or I'm sorry, is a little bulb that has been interrupted in growth. Started out as a plant and then it's uh, interrupted in its growth and you're, you're putting out a little small bulb-like thing the size of, um, oh gosh, maybe a grape at the biggest. I am not a big fan of sets because I find that so many of the sets will tend to come up and immediately go to bloom. We call it bolting and once that happens they're not going to get any larger and they're not going to store as well. 
What I prefer to plant are the actual onion plants. You buy them in a bunch. They're normally 75 to 125 plants in a bunch. Should cost you less than five bucks, and you can get a lot of different varieties. Uh, some of the real sweet ones, high sugar ones, like the 1015s, uh, they're great. They're easy to grow and absolutely delicious, but the real high sugar ones don't have the keeping quality of some of your Bermudas. You can have noble whites and purples and just all different kinds of onions. And they all grow extremely well here, but uh, the sweet ones, because of the amount of sugar in the sap, tend to not have the really long keeping quality. So anyway, those are a few things that uh, you could certainly you could certainly be doing out in the yard. I've got plenty of others, but uh, uh, Don sent me a note that says Angie, David, and Mark are ready to talk. So let's get right back to the phone lines, and it's Angie's turn. Good morning, Angie. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I need a refresher course on the compost tea recipe, if you would. Okay. Compost. Well, let's let's talk about two different things. Uh, one is compost okay. tea, and the other is compost leachate. Compost leachate right. is means just taking a good compost, soaking it in water, and then the liquid comes off, and it is full of all the you know beneficial bacteria and other microorganisms. Uh, and and compost leachate is very easy to make, and it's a very good thing to be using in the garden. Compost tea is something that is actually brewed, as it were. You start with uh, with basically with compost leachate. You're going to put your compost in water and uh, and let it soak for a little while. But then we add other stimulants. We may add molasses in small quantities. We may add seaweed. We may add uh, a little fish emulsion. Uh, many people add, oh, sometimes it's a proprietary mix of some minerals and other things. But in compost tea, we then bubble it. Uh, we use, uh, if you're doing it at home, you're probably going to use the same sort of air stone that you would use in a fish aquarium. But uh, what you're doing is you're taking all those good microbes that were in your compost leachate and you're making them reproduce a thousand times over. So for every one bacteria that you had in there, let's say you're going to have a hundred thousand of them if you brew it for uh, 24 hours or to 36 hours is about the optimum time. But with that kind of reproduction, reproduction going on, you've got to have extra oxygen. So compost tea is uh, <clears throat> It's sort of a two-step process. You start with your compost leachate, then you add your stimulants and oxygen and let it bubble for a day, day and a half, something like that, and then spray that around, and it's just... Uh uh, it's just much more potent, so to speak. Your microbes are much more concentrated, but it certainly takes a little bit more effort to make it. Now, compost teas, your your basic compost tea, you're just adding things, like I say, like your fish emulsion, like your seaweed, mm -hmm. um, uh, a few other things like that. The um, You can buy some compost teas, but they only have a small portion of the microbes, only the ones that have a resting stage. So I think your your home brewed compost tea is best, but it takes a little time. And uh, uh, if you really get into it, you'll find books by people like uh, Dr. Lane Ingham is uh, 
probably the leading authority in the world. She has offices, her company's called the Soil Food Web, and I think she has offices on six continents, and she's done a lot of writing and put a lot of things out there. There are various things you can read about compost tea, but the most uh-huh. important things with tea is to remember it has to be made fresh and used immediately. So is that enough of a compost tea 101 to get you started? Yeah, I've made it before. I've just kind of fallen off of my... I just have had some... I just needed to remember the... Like, I have a five-gallon bucket, and should I Mm -hmm. fill it up like a third of the way, or a third of the way to make the leachate, and then fill it up with water all the way up? I probably... uh, It doesn't really matter. Uh, Some people will put the compost directly in. If you're going to pour it on with a watering can or something, that works fine. If you're going to be putting it out in a sprayer... You obviously don't want too many particles in there to clog up the sprayer. So what you can do is go to a paint store and get what they call a paint strainer's bag. It's what painters use to pour their paint through to take out any lumps before they start painting. And you can just get a paint strainer's bag, put your compost in there, dunk it down in the water for a few hours, and then you just pull that bag out and go dump the compost somewhere else. And you end up with uh, not nearly as much material in your tea that could potentially clog your spray. So just like a bag of compost to a five-gallon bucket would be okay? Oh, probably two cups of compost to a five-gallon bucket. Oh, that helps. Okay. Two cups to a five-gallon bucket and then just add like a little... Yeah, with, with compost tea, what you're doing is you're just, you're inoculating it. Um, but even, you know, even your compost leachate is going to have millions and billions of right. bacteria and fungi in there. Then when you start bubbling it and brewing it, you're going to increase the numbers maybe a thousand fold. So it's just astronomical the number of beneficial microbes you'll be putting out. Okay, so I could just make the leachate and then add that, like you said, the strain leachate to make the tea. Right. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I well, will get back to my... I do have the stones and the bubbling the bubbling stones, so I will... Well, thank you so much. You're way ahead, Angie. So you call me All if right. you have more questions. And uh, David, Mark, hang on. I do need to get a quick break in here, and then we'll talk to you gentlemen. Right now, I get to talk about the freeze miser. I love talking about the freeze miser. It's just... Boy, we feel like we just really discovered something last year. It's just one of the most clever, just most remarkable devices that I've ever seen. That's how I can really describe it. Uh, it was actually developed over uh, just south of Seguin, over in Stockdale, Texas. A couple of inventors came up with this little device. No batteries, no wires, just some amazing physics and chemistry inside. And you put it on your hydrant and then turn the water on full blast. Nothing happens. Nothing comes out of the hydrant unless or until the water temperature inside the hydrant approaches freezing. Magical mark, there is actually 37 degrees. Now, it has nothing to do with air temperature, but when the water in your hydrant gets down to 37 degrees, the freeze miser starts automatically dripping your hydrant. And then as soon as it warms up, it shuts off. So you can put the freeze miser on that hydrant one time, leave it on all winter, and you simply won't have to worry about things freezing. They use these things all the way up at Minnesota soda in Wyoming and way up where it gets a lot colder than it does here can't tell you how many probably thousands of them we sold last year and 
people coming back this year, <laughs> if they got one or two, they're coming back and buying more because they're saying, I want to put it on every hydrant, plus I've got six people I'm going to give them to for Christmas presents. If you're tired of dripping your hydrants, if you're tired of worrying about uh, hydrants freezing and breaking, you really need to learn about the freeze miser. And if it's a place, if it's a hydrant you normally water regularly, even through the winter months, just put a little Y connector on there with its two little separate shutoffs. Put your freeze miser on one side, put your hose on the other side, and you use hose when you need to, and the freeze miser protects the rest of the time. It works the same way on a with float valve on a water trough. It's just absolutely amazing. Go to freeze miser, M-I-S-E-R, freezemiser.com to learn all about it. You'll find your freeze misers at independent hardware stores, at nursery and garden centers, farm and ranch stores. You won't find them in the box stores, but uh, you'll find them at your independent retail dealers. And let me tell you, they are absolutely amazing. Freeze Miser, M-I-S-E-R. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. It looks like we're going to talk to David and Mark and James. David is up first. Good morning, David. Hey, appreciate you taking my call, Bob. Appreciate um, you calling. Thank you. I listen to your show all the time. Appreciate um, it. I've got a, a, some property I'm clearing, and, and uh, there there were some uh, large red oak branches that, that fell during that freeze last year. Um, uh-huh. Le- leaves stayed on. Is it all right to cut the, that up and use it as firewood? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, even, even in areas where we've had oak wilt issues, once firewood dries, it all the spore mats are totally inactivated. So even if you had a tree that died of oak wilt, uh, if you lift it out and feel for six months afterwards, <clears throat> even that would be safe to use as firewood. Yeah. And where you just have freeze damage wood, uh, there's absolutely no hesitation to cut that. In fact, it's some of the best firewood you'll ever find, as you probably already yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. So and in the uh, and. I'm over like driftwood area, and uh, mm-hmm. we had oak wilt through here one time. You know, PEC brought you know from many years ago, yeah. and it was treated. And and then uh, I still notice there's you know just an ongoing decline of the larger oak trees and just dying out. And I I just kind of assume that's uh, you know lots of drought years and just lack of nutrients. You know, I'm sitting on rock over here, and and uh, but as as the trees die off, the the uh, some of them are. Like the, I cut down a uh, a trunk that I topped out probably ten years ago, and I cut mm-hmm. that down, and it was like rock. I mean, it's solid as a rock, and, and <laughs> yes, I sir. split it. You know, it took years to dry, and mm-hmm. then I'll go and cut another one, and it's just it's rotting faster than anything else. So, it, it, is the the cause of death determine whether a tree dries out just super hard, or, or uh, how how is that? Well, not really. It a lot. <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, something in my throat. Um, uh, kind of determined by the uh, condition of the tree. You know, when it died. If we're talking live oaks now. Red oaks, um, that wood is always going to rot more quickly than live oaks. A live oak that was hollow, a live oak that already had some damaged, uh, decaying wood inside of it uh, is obviously going to be easier to split and slower to rot. But uh, And it's kind of like, you know, I I try to spend a little time hiking up Wyoming every summer. And up there, uh, my friends tell me where they have a fire go through. That tree may stand there as a snag for a hundred years that 
that the foliage burned off of. But once it falls and hits the ground, it's probably going to rot away in five years just because being in contact with the soil, having the extra moisture, having the decomposing microbes uh, in contact with the wood just makes it rot a whole lot faster. But uh, not really. You know, whether it's killed by lightning, whether it's killed by drought, whether it's killed by oak wilt, that uh, doesn't really change the consistency of the wood. Now, the way oak wilt kills, this fungus plugs up the portion of the tree that transports the water uh, from the roots right. up to the top of the tree. It's what we call a vascular fungus. And um, so when we have a combination of drought plus oak wilt, we have a lot more damage show up a lot more quickly. Uh, the good news is that we are finding more and more that oak wilt is preventable and is actually treatable through what we call systemic induced resistance. And uh, this is done with things like salicylic acid, cornmeal is the most common thing, trichoderma does it, uh, harpin protein does it. But there's real good scientific evidence out there now that we can keep a tree from ever getting oak wilt in the first place. So it's hard to I'm say if it's practical. It. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying it's, to do it because I'll pack those buckets of cornmeal yeah. uh, stuff around. And, uh, but but in the uh, if I'm losing trees... And, and, you know, it's, it doesn't show, like, the, the sign of oak wilt, except that mm -hmm. the tree's dead. I mean, the leaves never, you know, showed the sign of it. Right. They just got thin, thinner and then died. Is that just, just the end of the cycle of the oaks? Well, it, it could be, you know, drought certainly contributes. Uh, we had trees die. We even had live oaks die of uh, winter, last winter. And when you went north of, uh, I'm in the Bernie area, we got down about four degrees, but uh, you get up around Fredericksburg where they had the combination of uh, real cold and ice, um, there, there are a lot of weather kill trees around as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And of course, right. the you know where you're sitting just on a layer of rock, uh, those trees are much more susceptible to both drought damage and and the problem is that a lot of times by the damage shows by the time the damage shows up, uh, it's too late to do anything about it. It uh, we can have the drought, we can have the damage to the root system, and then we get a good rain, but the trees die anyway because the roots were so damaged by the drought before that hit. And uh, that's been going on ever since 2011, which is the driest year in recorded uh, history in the Hill Country. I remember it well. <laughs> yes, sir. Me too. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to see those big trees go. But, uh, there's a lot of firewood out there. <laughs> uh, that's when I had a tornado come through my place a few years ago. I, I tried not to look at it as, uh, as tree damage, but as uh, firewood production. <laughs> so it's, it's all about maintaining a good attitude for, most, for many reasons. Yeah, great. One more real quick thing. Anything sure. I can do for you know, um plants to get them to uh, fruit out more than, uh, like last year, there were no berries at all. On it's what kind of plants now? Agarita. Agarita. It, that was all the freeze. Uh, the freeze got the buds before the flowers even started to open. Uh, wasn't anything you did or failed to do. It's just the freeze. Yeah. Uh, even many times uh, we had what they're called bud primordia. You really can't even see it without a microscope. But if those freeze or are damaged or whatever, any blooms that come out are going to be deformed and incapable of reproduction. So uh, the problem this past year was just, uh, you know, it's just too cold for too long. If you've got a way to change that, uh, I've got a way for us to make some money. 
<laughs> I don't. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. I, I didn't think so, but that that's that's the problem that the Agarita had this year, and uh, nothing you can really do but about I, it. I, I guess fer- if you, I don't ever you, fertilize them or anything. I mean, is, is that something you could do to get? You know, I look. I, I make the jelly when I when it's around, but uh, the uh, yeah. it, and, it's all just. And feeding this time of year is actually going to make them more cold hardy. Uh, if you did the things we do in the garden, spraying with liquid seaweed, you would get more robust plants, which would mean more berries. But I tell you, agaritas, uh, I, I love the berries, but it's not my favorite plant. It uh, Every time I work around agarita, it, uh, there's a bit of blood loss involved. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm not usually trying to make them grow bigger. Yeah, the uh, making the jelly is, is absolutely ridiculously time consuming, but uh, it's a it's a labor of love for sure. Oh well, but, and uh, I've had some agarita wine a couple of years ago. I had the pleasure of uh, not that I know anything about wine, but for I guess they wanted somebody on the radio to to taste their wines. But I judged the uh, with a couple of people who knew a whole lot more than I did. Uh, we did the home wine division at the uh, Medina County Fair. And let me tell you what, there are some uh, agarita wine out there that's pretty darn good. <laughs> Even more trouble than jelly, though. Yeah. Bob, appreciate the, uh, always appreciate the information and uh, enjoy listening to it. Well, I appreciate that. David, you get out and have a great uh, Sunday, and we'll talk to Mark. Good morning, Mark. Morning, sir. How are you doing? Off to a good start. How about yourself? Pretty good. had a couple of questions. Um, I have two uh, moringa trees. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out what would be the best way to protect them uh, this winter. Well, of course, you know, begin with uh, doing everything you can as far as organic fertilizers, spraying with liquid seaweed, the things that build up what we call the bricks or the sugar content of the sap. That's going to give them some protection. Beyond that, you just almost have to cover them or build a greenhouse around them. And that gets difficult when you have a plant that can get up to be pretty good sized. Um, there are what we call row covers, some of them better than others. I like a brand called Insulate, just the letter N-S-U-L-A-T-E. It's a, a lightweight white woven material that adds quite a few degrees of cold protection that you can put over a tree. Where you've got a tree that's just too big that you can consider covering it, what I would do is wrap the lower several feet of the trunk, two or three layers thick, and that way even if the top of the tree freezes, it will come out from below. Uh, And there's a point there too, don't protect the top of the tree and fail to protect the trunk, because if the trunk freezes, it doesn't matter whether the top is protected or not, the tree's going to die. And if the tree is, like I say, it's too big to cover the whole thing, wrap the trunk up, and that way even if the top freezes, it can sprout out from down below. Okay, okay. And then just the usual things. Always before a hard freeze is predicted, water thoroughly before the temperature drops below freezing. Once we've gotten down to freezing, uh, you don't want to be watering. But uh, if they tell you it's going to freeze hard tonight, be sure you water hard this afternoon. Yes, sir. And then um, I've heard you talk about using garlic to repel pests. Um, And I don't know if it's possible. uh, Can you use the garlic that's sold at the... uh, grocery store that's in a powder form like you know the salt shakers the garlic powder oh absolutely absolutely be sure you're not getting garlic salt 
because uh, oh, no. that yeah. much sodium can cause problems. But uh, yeah, your garlic granules, your garlic flakes, or even your garlic paste, your liquid garlics, those all contain uh, what is uh, pretty pretty repellent to a lot of different things, uh, both large and small creatures. Oh, okay, okay. And then last question: um, I'm having a really hard time with this nutsage. I'm trying to figure out how to how to get rid of it. Oh, my my short answer is move. <laughs> <laughs> it's it is nut sedge is is not a grass it is a sedge sedges are plants that like lots of moisture and like really lousy soil so they it tends to move into areas where you don't have um you know just absolutely the best growing conditions and it doesn't really hurt anything oh malcolm beck once told me the healthiest cornfield he'd ever seen he walked out and he was just in a sea of nutsedge so we've been conditioned to think it's a bad thing and to try to kill it and there's nothing wrong with that but it's not anything that's really going to harm your plants it uh, may harm your your marital relationship if you're told to take care of it and you don't but we don't go down that down that road but the probably the most effective thing in dry times to eliminate it is liquid molasses and you want to make it fairly concentrated probably half a cup of molasses to a gallon of water and you just saturate the area that you have the nut sedge. It won't bother your grass, won't bother shrubs or anything else. And it doesn't happen overnight, but you'll just notice that uh, the nut sedge suddenly yellows and starts rotting away. And uh, it needs to be in a dry time, though. If you've got plenty of moisture, uh, the nut sedge is going to keep going no matter what. But uh, that is that has given us the best overall results. There are a couple of chemicals out there, but they will be very bad on the roots of your trees and shrubs and other things. And uh, like I say, dry times and molasses seem to get it under control pretty well. Yeah, it was, it's been so bad. I, I I was like, well, I'm just gonna go. I I'm, I do organic, but I'm thinking, you know, just I'm getting ready to use a chemical here pretty soon because it's, it's out of control. Well, and this has been such a wonderfully moist uh, late summer, fall, into the early winter. We've had such regular rain, and the chemicals aren't going to work either. You're going to put out that image or manage or whatever you're getting, and uh, it's going to mess up your trees and other things, and the nut sedge is just going to keep on going. We really need a, a bit of drought to really be able to control nut sedge effectively. And something I did years ago, and this was in a bed of roses, and before we even knew about the molasses, is I just put about three inches of compost on the surface of the ground is a mulch and it's almost like the nut sedge migrated up to the top of the compost i go and i pull one plant and i get every little plant for you know six inches around would come up at the same time and i worked at that for probably six or eight weeks and i totally eliminated the nut sedge from a bed doing that now that's not real practical in the yard but in flower beds um, you can in effect get it up out of the soil it'll grow out of that and up into the you know much more open material and it sure makes it a whole lot easier to effectively pull out do you think i should uh, uh um put put compost and then pour the um that molasses and water on top of it or would that does it matter i, I would I would go with the molasses water combination first. Many times that's all you have to do. But like I say, if we're in a real wet period or if it's an area that you just, for whatever reason, it gets watered too often, then I would go uh, with the compost. I think I'd probably do one or the other. I don't think you gain a lot by trying to do both. Okay. Okay. Well, I have my work cut out for me. I'll, I'll get started. <laughs> Well, and keep in mind that it's, it doesn't happen overnight, but uh, 
and you know in in the grass and things like that of course uh the best defense is a good offense be watering and fertilizing and mowing regularly during the active growing season on your grass and uh uh, it will eventually choke the nuts edge out, but in the meantime, uh, like I say, a little dry time, a little bit of molasses is going to give you a good head start. All right. Well, I appreciate the help as usual. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. I appreciate the call this morning. Thank you. Right, thank James, you. hang on just a second. Let's get a break done, and you will be up next. Looks like I get to talk about Swift River Pecans, and again, just a neat new company. I love it when you discover people that are doing it right, that are offering products that uh, very few other people have. Swift River Pecans, we became acquainted with them down at the herb market this year, and gosh, it's just, it's such a neat, neat company. They pretty much do everything related to pecans. Uh, in fact, they're going to be down at the uh, Pearl Farmers Market uh, through the holiday season, and if you're looking for great pecans, they, they've won almost every award that can be won. They grow about 10 different varieties of pecans. They've grafted over a thousand trees in their own orchards. It's just, they've got lots of pecans, and they also so, uh, produce pecan oil. Your finer chefs love to use pecan oil in their different culinary delights, and Swifter have some of the best pecan oil you're going to find anywhere. Maybe you have your own good pecan crop? Well, Swifter will crack those pecans for you if you need that service. And they also, they have two sawmills. They don't cut down live trees, but where pecans have gone down, they harvest that wood and turn it into absolutely incredible lumber. You need to go to their website and really take a look at the pictures of some of this. See the sawmills in action they make beautiful mantles they make just big slabs of wood that can be used for many different purposes and finer wood that can be used for flooring or you know siding uh, it's just beautiful material pecan is a gorgeous wood to begin with and swift river pecans well they just do a lot of neat neat things with it check them out online swiftriverpecans.com their actual location is up uh, they're on the highway between san marcus and luling up there really pretty easy to get to but uh, check out the website first and just look at all the different things they do and on uh, farmers market days like I say through the holidays you can find them down at the Pearl that's Swift River Pecans South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071 all right back to the phone lines it's gonna be James and Carolyn good morning James Hey, good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Let me turn off that exhaust fan. Um, <laughs> hey, listen, I, I had a uh, Althea that never did well. I think I called you about it in the past, and it looks like it's finally given up the go, so to speak. So I want to replace it. Um, I want to go with the crepe myrtle, but I want a deep red one. But okay. I, I want something that doesn't grow real tall. I don't want a dwarf or a miniature, but something that maybe gets six to eight feet tall is there such a thing at the moat at the tallest yeah if you want a real deep red um all of them are going to be a little taller than that the the two best of the super red ones uh uh, one of them is called Red Rocket, and the other is called Dynamite. But both of those would like to be 10 to 12 feet. You can keep them down by pruning once a year, but that's going to be that's going to be for a really, really red. Um, those are still those are still by far the best, but they're getting a little bit bigger than what you're looking for. Uh, the pink or red ones, uh, there's a 
Uh, there's one called Pokemoki that only grows about four feet tall. One of my favorites is called Centennial Spirit, and it normally gets up to about eight feet tall. But uh, I just, I am not aware, unless they've come out with a, a lower one recently. I'll tell you the, the folks to call, talk to either Mark or Mike over at Fanix because they oh, they get like yeah. 100 different varieties of crepe myrtles every summer. And they're a little bit ahead of the rest of the crowd as far as knowing what's coming out. And by this next season, there may be a super dark red and a more uh, compact variety. I just haven't seen one that I really like yet. Okay, I've already got a couple of pinks and a purple and a white. I wanted a deep red. Actually, the two pinks that I planted out the end of my driveway on either side, mm -hmm. I don't know, 20 years ago, um, they were mislabeled. Um, they were supposed to be a deep red, but they're a pink. <laughs> so um, <laughs> but they're nice. But I, I wanted a deep red, and uh, it's just where I want to put this one. I don't want it to be blocking windows, front door, etc. cetera. Sure. Um, okay. Well, let, well me get, I, let me call I, them over at Fanix or go visit yeah. them. I probably need to pick and, up some uh, onions anyway. But uh, again, if if you if you can tolerate six feet tall, I mean you can you can accomplish that with uh, just once a year pruning. You can make a real beautiful bush out of uh, red rocket or dynamite, either one. And uh, it's going to take you about five minutes a year to keep it down to the size you want. So I wouldn't pass it up uh, unless you can find something guaranteed to be, you know, what you're looking for at a smaller size. Uh, Red Rocket and Dynamite are both really time-tested and proven ones. And uh, you can, like I say, you can limit their size with annual pruning. But uh, let me know what you learn. Okay. If you find a really good deep red in a, in a shorter variety, I'd love to know about it to share with everybody else. I will, but real quick... Um on the on the red, if I get the one of those two reds, which I've heard the names many times on your program before, um, if I stop pruning it, you know, after a few years, will it revert back to a tall size? Number one and number two, I thought you weren't supposed to really top a crepe myrtle; it would kind of ruin its shape or whatnot. Or I guess well, what I'm asking I, by is, pruning, if I get I'm one of these, pruning. how do I prune it to keep it lower in height? Yeah, prune, pruning does not mean topping. What you do okay. is you will take the the trunks, the branches, whatever you want to call them, that are getting higher than you want, and you simply follow that down to where you have a smaller branch coming off and cut it just above that point. And what the crate model then does is it just puts its energy into developing that little already started branch. If you just lop it off at a random point, no, that's when you get that whole bird's nest of growth that's what we call crepe murder. But, uh, yeah, I don't proper, want that. I don't like that yeah, look at all. No, but, but proper pruning is, is just you know following the limb, the trunk, whatever, down to uh, a point that you've got a a branch coming off pointing the direction that you want it to grow and prune just above that point and you can control the size without uh without creating great myrtle and making an ugly thing out of it uh, that that's pruning and that works very well so if i did that like for five years after i planted it each year would, can i cease doing it or is it going to go back to 12 foot tall <laughs> it's going to go back to being 12 feet tall again but uh by that okay. point, they may have a shorter one that you can dig that one out and plant one that you don't have to prune so much on. All right. I got you. All right. I appreciate it, as always. Thank you. As always, I appreciate the call. Get out and have a great day. Thank you. You too. Bye. Carolyn, uh, Carolyn, let me uh, let me get a break in here quickly, and then we'll enjoy visiting with you. Right now, I have the pleasure of talking about Wild Birds Unlimited. and. Uh, 
that's going to cost me some money. You know, I just love going by and walking through Wild Birds Unlimited, and I just almost never come away without finding something that I either need for myself, or I will admit, that's when I'm out uh, Christmas present shopping for friends and family. Wild Birds Unlimited is one of my favorite stores to go to because they've got top quality, they've got unique items, and it's so much more than just a bird store. Now, if you're fortunate and the folks you're looking for gifts for are into birding, man, you'll find the very best in feeders and seasonal bird seed, maybe binoculars to enjoy the birds at a very reasonable price. Everything birds are going to find at Wild Birds Unlimited, but they have so much more. Each Wild Birds Unlimited store shops independently for their own gift merchandise, and I don't think anybody in the country does as good a job as Kyle and his staff do over at our Wild Birds Unlimited, the one that's out there in the shopping center at the corner of Northwest Military and Hebner. They've extended their hours for the holiday season, so they're open into the evenings, and uh, they just want to want to be there for you with what you need. And if you are a birder, well, you know, all the different things you're going to find there. The great suet cakes for the fall and winter months that the birds, uh, especially your, your insect-eating birds, need so much. They've also got a sort of a winter blend. You know, most people don't even realize that birds prefer different seed in the winter months than they do in the summer. Well, Wild Birds Unlimited knows that, and they've got the seed that's going to be the very best for your birds and your bird feeders. And by the way, if you need a new bird feeder, they've got lots of them that have a lifetime guarantee. I just can't say enough nice things about our Wild Birds Unlimited store. Once again, out there in the shopping center at the corner of Northwest Military and Hebner, it's actually on the side that faces Northwest Military. That'll make it a little bit easier for you to find. Open seven days a week to serve you at Wild Birds Unlimited. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Well, it's going to be Carolyn and Carrie and Mark. I'm sure we won't get to all of those before the news break, but that's the order, and we start with Carolyn. Good morning, Carolyn. Good morning, Bob. Happy holidays. And to you as well. Thank you very much. I have a little uh, orange bug that is the size and shape of a ladybug. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's a good bug or a bad bug. Well, there are lots of ladybugs out there right now. And um, what what kind of plants, where are you seeing these bugs? Seeing them everywhere. And they fly, and then they land, and they walk for a while, and then they fly. They just fly short distances. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if it's related to these tiny slits I'm seeing in my plant leaves. It looks like someone's just taken a knife and slit like a quarter of an inch don't think they would be responsible for that. They might be looking for whatever caused that, but uh, I'm like you. I'm seeing lots of ladybugs, and if they're orange, some of them have more black spots, some of them have fewer black spots, some of them have no black spots at all. But I suspect what you're looking at uh, are actually ladybugs. There are quite a few of them around, uh, thanks to the moisture we've had, and, and that's a good thing. Now, Little slits and things in the leaves. Caterpillars are still the most common culprit uh, to be causing that. For a safe contact killer, you can use spinosad, but that would be harmful to the ladybugs, so that's not my first choice. My first choice is always the BT, the uh, bacterial product, stands for Bacillus thuringiensis. That kills the caterpillars, but it's harmless to the beneficials and, of course, totally harmless to people and pets as well. So. 
I go out with, at night with a flashlight and see if you can catch them in the act, but I imagine what you have is is uh, some sort of caterpillar. The BT controls them safely and effectively, and you don't have to get it on the caterpillar. You just get it on the foliage of the plant. The caterpillar takes one bite of a sprayed leaf, stops feeling, uh, feeding immediately, and dies fairly shortly. Okay. Is BT the one that has a short li- shelf life? Only about 30 years. Oh, okay. (laughs) It has the longest shelf life of anything I know of. No, neem oil is the one that has the very short shelf life. But uh, I sat down with old when Barney Grimm was alive. He was chief chemist for the Greenlight Chemical Company. He actually founded the company under a different name. But Barney and I went through all of the insecticides, and uh, he he told me he felt like BT had a shelf life, as long as it hadn't gotten superheated, but it would last up to 30 years. So uh, it's one that... It's one that you don't have to be replacing every year. All right, excellent. And my last question is Gerber daisies. I just absolutely love them. That was the Mm -hmm. only green thing in my yard after this year's freeze, and they actually were flowering. Mm -hmm. They're gorgeous, and I would like to propagate them. Can you tell me how and when? They never stop blooming. Well, your Gerber daisies can be grown from seed, but uh, usually you're best to just buy some new plants. Buy them small, and they're fairly inexpensive, but uh, they really don't branch. They really don't fill out a whole lot, so it's it's very difficult. You can't really divide them the way you can many other things. If you want to let them go to seed, they make a seed head that looks not quite like a dandelion. They can be grown from seed, but it's um, it's not a real easy process. So uh, I would tell you just uh, set aside a, a few dollars and just uh, just buy some more. They are one of the best plants. They are totally uh, drought tolerant. Plant them in the sun, baby them at first, and then just go off and leave them. And they'll give you blooms over a long period of time. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right, back to gardening. Uh, Don tells me that we've got Scott and Carrie standing by, and so I guess next up there would be Scott. Good morning, Scott. Morning. Good morning, um, sir. I have a red lion amaryllis. Mm-hmm. Uh, can I... It, it came with, you know, that soil medium that you add water to and it expands. Right. Would it be best to repot that with something that had a little compost, uh, <laughs> a lot of no, sand, I in there? Yeah, I certainly would. I just use a good potting soil. I I guess that's lightweight. I guess it makes it easier for them to ship, and that makes it possible for you to get those little uh, kits. But it is a great amaryllis, but long-term, it certainly will do better in a good potting soil, and uh, I just use basically the same sort of soil you'd use for your houseplants. be ideal for amaryllis. What about the roots? I just took it out of the pot, and the roots are... I think I read it kind of likes to be pot-bound a little bit. They grow extremely well if they are pot-bound, but on the other hand, um, you know, if you... If you go over to Houston or go very far south, people actually plant these things in the yard. Now, the red lion is one of the hippiastrums, one of the Dutch hybrids, but there are amaryllis like the old Johnson I read that uh, people grow in their flower beds year-round here. So um, 
they could be in a pot, they could be in the ground. I will say they certainly do not mind being in pots. Uh, my business partner put, I don't even remember which variety it was, but she's had one basically in the same pot, maybe been repotted once for six or eight years. It now fills the pot out. It has sometimes five, six, seven spikes of flowers at one time on it. So I love amaryllis and uh, they're they're certainly easy to grow. Uh, you can grow them. I, I like them in a clay pot just because it dries a little faster. And uh, they do become root-bound, but I'm not going to tell you it's, it's mandatory that you, uh, that you let them be root-bound. Uh, should you trim the roots at all at any point? Or just if, let it be root-bound? Because I, oh, I was kind of wondering how I was going to get most of that soil back in there. Well, um, look at the roots carefully if they are fleshy and feel very firm uh, they you know um, you really don't have to do any trimming just kind of spread them out maybe even go with a little bit bigger pot but any of them that feel spongy or feel dry and that's probably going to be a, a fair number of them considering the way they ship them as a kit uh, just take your just take your scissors and just just prune off you probably you won't hurt anything if you cut off half two-thirds of the root system if that makes it easier for you to handle okay all right and always in direct light no direct light oh no they love direct light if you have it inside uh absolute the sunniest window you have will give you uh, by far the strongest stem you will have to you know spin it around periodically so that it doesn't bend over toward the light uh but inside they want the sunniest window you have if you have them outside I guess ideally maybe sun up to 2 o'clock in the afternoon and a little protection from the hottest part of the afternoon. But regardless of what you do, they're going to be beautiful, you know, this time around because this blooming is based on the nutrient that the bulb already has stored. To keep it looking bigger and better every year, what you do is um, is keep fertilizing, keep watering it, even after the flowers are gone. You want it to put on as much foliage as you possibly can because that's going to make the bulb bigger and stronger, may actually cause it to form additional little bulbs down at the base. And so the care after it finishes blooming is what really determines how it's going to do next year. And then sometime toward the end of the summer, toward the fall, you need to force it to go into dormancy. You do that by withholding the water. You want all the foliage to die off of it. You want to keep it dry for probably six weeks or so, and then the whole cycle starts over again. If you don't do that, if you just treat it like a pot plant and you know keep watering and fertilizing, it'll make a beautiful green plant and it'll never flower again. It has to in its native environment. It's, it has a, a dry season, which is, which is what initiates the flowering cycle, and you're going to need to do the same thing in your pot. Uh, like I say, toward the end of the summer, uh, you want to uh, just completely let it go dry. You want to let the foliage die back. You can actually time when you start wa watering again. You want to give it about six weeks on the dry side and then time your time your watering. It will come into bloom usually about eight to ten weeks from the time you start resuming the watering. So you can have it in bloom for Thanksgiving. You can have it in bloom for Christmas. You can have it in bloom for Valentine's Day or you get totally hooked on it and have about 15 pots of them and you'll have flowers all spring. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, since it's in that growing medium, should I take it out of that growing medium just to have nothing but roots? Because that growing medium, I haven't watered it, and it's still moist. Well, I if it's... You know, if it's already rooted through it, 
probably leave it in there for now. But uh, this summer, when it's time to force it into dormancy, basically bare root it, cut off most of the roots, and uh, start it over in a better medium for the foreseeable future. Okay, so just wait for the next round? Yeah, that's what I would do. All right. Thanks, sir. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate the call. And uh, Don, let's see, I believe you said Carrie is up next. Uh, that will be your next caller. Good morning, Carrie. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I have an avocado tree, and it is dropping its leaves. I did move it inside, and uh, I use has to grow and all of that with it, so I'm not sure what's going on with it. And why did you move it inside? Oh, it was getting too cold. Okay. <laughs> you must not be in South Texas. Where Where are you? Well, I'm up in the hill country, but um, I have a lot of um, tropical stuff. That mm-hmm. I have a Florida room that's got a lot of light, so I moved mm-hmm. it into there. Well, even even your Florida room is not going to be the amount of light it had outside, and that's probably why it's dropping some leaves. You know, even the California avocados, they can go right down to freezing. They're not like your plumerias and things like that that really have to come in. But most okay. of that leaf loss is probably probably two things. It probably got a little dry at some point, and just the lower light level is what is uh, is what is causing it to drop some leaves. I wouldn't be concerned. Uh, is it dropping leaves sort of from the bottom up? Is it the oldest leaves that are yellowing and dropping? Um, they're not even yellowing. They're green, and they're dropping. Okay. That's, that's a change in all, light. It's all through it. Okay, it's a change yeah. in light. Put it in the absolute sunniest spot. If the weather keeps up the way it is, uh, as long as it's not, you know, totally huge and, and too hard to move, I'd move no. it back outside as long as you can. I mean, if you get one of these little okay. coasters, one of these dollies that you can roll it back and forth on, um, yeah. makes it a little bit easier. But it's it's just going through the shock of, uh, you know, getting 30%, 40% light less than it's used to getting. Okay, good deal. Uh, I can fix that. And then the... Um Oh, hibiscus, they're just going to drop their leaves no no matter what, right? Uh, we're talking inside. tropical hibiscus? Yeah. Yeah, they're the pink and the um, mallows. Well, now the mallows, the mallows, uh, you certainly don't have to bring in. The mallows can go down close to zero. They, It's normal for them oh. to freeze back. And uh, okay. they... You know, they don't have to freeze back. You could keep them inside if you want them, but your mallows are hardy hibiscus that in a typical year freeze down and come right back out in the spring. One of the first years we were in business 40 years ago, we had uh, that winter of, uh, I believe it was 1983, and uh, we had mallows that accidentally got left outside when it was like five degrees. They came out the next spring, every single one of them with no problem. So your mallows, you really don't have to worry about. Now, your tropical hibiscus, they will drop yellow leaves if they get too dry. But if they're getting if they're getting adequate light, they, they really should keep their foliage all winter long. And for that matter, should keep okay. blooming all winter long. Bougainvilleas yeah, well, are going to drop. Blooming. They, <laughs> yeah. They're still blooming. Yeah. Okay. Well, the tropical ones will need the cold protection. The mallows will not. The uh, your your bougainvilleas are going to be the worst about dropping all their leaves in the winter months, even though they go on blooming, kind of like your plumerias do. But uh, really, tropical hibiscus uh, ought to hold most of their leaves through the winter just fine. Great. Yeah. Even my uh, passion flowers are hanging on. 
<laughs> it's been an amazing year. It just yes, goes to show yeah. you there's no such thing as normal in Texas. There's there's yeah, typical, sure. but every year seems to be a bring on a little bit of a new challenge. But I don't know about you. I'm kind of enjoying having uh, having a, a warm winter so far. I'm loving it. I like Texas <laughs> for a reason. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Well, get out and enjoy your Sunday and call me anytime I can advise or help. It's always good to talk to you. Will do. Thank you so much. Goodbye. All right, let me talk for a minute about Rhonda's Nature's Way. I tell you what, talk about somebody that I just love and respect so much, somebody that has helped me, helped so many of my friends with just living a healthier life, with maintaining your immune system. If you've been trying to lose a little bit of weight, Rhonda has things that will help. I always talk about her fine products. Maybe one thing I ought to talk about, too, is the all the information that that lady provides. She has pamphlets and brochures on just about every issue that faces a human. And I have learned so much from reading about ways to prevent serious, you know, real serious problems from ever developing. It's always better to stop a problem before it starts than have to look for a solution for it. And Rhonda has just a wealth of information she can share with you. So if you're concerned about high blood pressure, if you're concerned about uh, type 2 diabetes, if you're concerned about oh, just uh, kidney issues, there, there's so many things that you can do naturally to help avoid those problems and to help reverse them if you already have a problem. Rhonda is just, uh, she's the most knowledgeable lady I know when it comes to natural solutions for many different problems. If you have issues with digestion, if you have issues with sleeping, have issues with mood, they're almost certainly things that will help you without having to go to the pharmacy and just keep getting a prescription refilled. Rhonda has the best of the best when it comes to supplements and vitamins. She practices the Beamer and Red Light Therapy at both locations. She does reflexology at the Northside store, has a lot of good foods that will help you Stay on your diet and still still satisfy your sweet tooth and take care of all those cravings. I just can't say enough nice things about Rhonda. Matter of fact, there was a lady in the nursery just a couple of days ago, and she said, I just came from Rhonda's, and you know what? She's as nice and knowledgeable as you said she was. Well, that's just the way she is. Uh, Rhonda has a Southside store over on Southwest Military, Northside store, one that I visit frequently, is in the shopping center there at the corner of I-10 in Callahan. She's open every day except Sunday at Rhonda's Nature's Way. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Looks like we're going to talk to Eric and then to Gary. Eric is up first. Good morning, Eric. Hey, how you doing this morning? I'm doing well. How about yourself? <laughs> I'm doing good. I got a, a couple of quick questions. I have some golden rain trees um, popping up everywhere in my yard. My neighbor actually has a actually has a golden rain tree, and I'm wanting to. I, I think they're a nice little tree, and I'm wanting to transplant it. And is this a good time to put it in the ground? Would it be okay now? And these are just little seedlings that you want to dig up and move to another area? Yeah, actually, some of them, they're such fast growers. Some of them have grown to be like four feet already. Okay. They're real tall. Yeah. Well, remember, the smaller, the more easily they will transplant. If I were doing it, I would do two things. I would uh, take some of them, probably, well, whichever size you choose, and do 
you're transplanting now. This is going to be the very best time of year for transplanting. But if you've got bunches of them, take a few more of them and put them in containers. Most nurseries will give you used nursery cans. And the the thing about golden rain trees, our southern golden rain tree, which is what we have, Colrutaria, um, they are not especially cold hardy, and lots of the trees were very badly damaged in the severe cold this past year. Hopefully, we're not going to see that kind of weather this year. But uh, just to hedge your bets, I would I would put a few of them in containers that you'd be able to protect through the winter if we do get another Arctic blast. And uh, and but I you know by all means I go ahead and plant some of them out in the yard. Like say probably the bigger ones, I would go ahead and transplant and replant. Uh, have your new holes dug. You don't want the roots to dry out at all in the transplanting process. So have your new holes dug. Just dig them, replant them, water them in with some garret juice and maybe a little bit of Super Thrive, and those will be off to a good start. But you know take okay. a few more of them and put them in pots. Uh, if we have a mild winter then you can go ahead and plant additional ones out or give to your friends next spring. Does that make sense? Right. And we actually, his have grown so fast. I'll bet you within about eight, six to eight years, it's grown to be about eight inches round. Oh, yeah. They're yeah, they very are very, fast very fast growing. But And they are absolutely beautiful. Uh, most people think that right that now kind they're, of... they're putting out a pink flower. It's well, no, that's not the flower. Those are the seed pods. Um, oh, those, but they're pretty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's that's what and that's what I was going to say. They they have an interesting yellow flower, but what makes them really noticeable this time of the year is that kind of salmon orangey, pinky seed pod that are just spectacular. It's I mean, you're not going to yes. see as many of them this year because there was a lot of cold damage this year. But uh, they're they're an absolutely beautiful, very very fast growing tree. Right, and it's. Uh, one thing I'm, I'm really I'm good friends with them, and I've, we've noticed when they got a lot bigger, they seem to crack or lose a lot of their like their siding on them or something. I don't you know mean on the trees from. themselves. Yeah, that I don't happens. Know if that's uh, that's that's really kind of normal, and as you so accurately pointed out, they're very, very fast-growing. And what many times happens, especially when we have a relatively wet summer and fall like we had, the trunk of the tree is simply growing faster than the bark can stretch. And it's just literally just splitting his britches, as my mother would have said. And uh, that uh, part of it could possibly be cold damage, but another part of it is we see this uh, in, in many fast-growing trees are just the bark can't stretch, can't expand as quickly as the central part of the tree is growing. Now, over time, they tend to form a callous tissue and heal completely. But um, if they look like good, healthy trees, they're just uh, they're just literally splitting their bark. They're growing so fast. Right, and we cut the top off this one because it because the freeze got it, mm-hmm. and it's yeah. just taken off like crazy again. <laughs> but I, I got it. Um, on the um, seedlings and everything, they, they just sprout everywhere. They're just amazing how they're, they're, the little ones are everywhere in my yard. It's like I have to literally take some and pull them out and throw them away because they're just coming up everywhere. 
Well, I think I think the winter actually uh, contributed to that because I think it, in effect, scarified the seeds so that it was faster to sprout. And we're seeing that in a number of uh, things that uh, while the winter was very hard on the mature plants, it certainly has caused a lot of new trees and various other things to come up. So uh, you just you, you got in at the right time. Uh, dig and put in pots as many of them as you'd like to share with friends next year. I know. Hey, how long do they live? Because Until we have a really hard a freeze. <laughs> now, oh, if we really? don't, if we don't have a killing freeze, I'd say their average lifespan is probably twenty-five to thirty years. Oh wow! They'll outlive me then. <laughs> oh, hope not. <laughs> yeah, I know. Hey, uh, one more quick question. I have. I live out in the country, and I have some of these uh, wee satch little plants coming up. What's a quick way to to is diesel? Uh, a way to get rid of them? Yeah, cut them down to ground level and give that soak a you know, good little cup or two or three, depending on how big the stump is. Uh, it's, it's not organic, but it's the safest killer. It's far better than the brush killers and uh, the microbes in the soil, especially if you add a little molasses, uh, the microbes in the soil will break that diesel down actually into a fertilizer, um, you know, as well oh, okay. as, as kill the wee satch. Yeah, they're, I, I'm trying to catch them where they're, you know, about smaller than a half inch or so. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you just need need half a cup of diesel to do that job. And a real quick one, I got a bunch of the little ant piles piling up in my yard. The ant, I guess they're fire ants. What do you, what's a quick way to... Are they actually making little mounds or um because we, yeah, we see mounds. yeah if if and if you break the top open you see the ants come boiling out uh i'm standing over one right now oh yeah oh yeah okay. and they got little white eggs everywhere well those are the those are the larvae the ant larvae and they move them up into the top of the mound on a daily basis because they develop much faster when it's warm and then they take it back down in the ground at night. But uh, great time to kill them. Uh, make yourself a bucket of orange oil and water or, um, you know, get something like uh, Nature's Creation makes a product they call Mound Drench. That's very effective. You can mix it with water and just pour over that, and you'll you'll kill a lot of ants in a hurry. Uh, just the reason I ask if you actually see the ants come boiling out is uh, yeah, I earthworms. Yeah, I and it cut the top off. What's that now? I put my hand over the top of it and put the top off of it, and it and a bunch of ants come boiling out with white eggs. Yeah, yeah, those are fire ants, and like I say, you can kill okay. them with uh, something like Mound Drench or with an orange oil and water mix. Uh, works very, very well. You'll sometimes, though, you'll see little smaller mounds that are actually little, uh, especially after we have rain, uh, you'll see little mounds of dirt, maybe two inches tall around your yard. Those are actually earthworms produce those. But if you see a little bigger mound and if you see ants when you, when you disturb it, yeah, those are fire ants and they, I don't, I don't disturb them out in my fields because they kill ticks, and I'd rather deal with fire ants than ticks. But in my garden, in my yard, no, fire ants got to die. Oh, I didn't know that. Hey, yeah. uh, um, this one old timer told me to take, and I don't. Have you ever heard of this? A five-gallon bucket, a teaspoon of gasoline, and a little palm olive soap. And he says that'll kill a man. <laughs> Have you ever well, heard of that? 
I I have a lot of friends with the fire department, and uh, (laughs) yeah, I I think they're better things. Um, Again, if you want something natural, the orange oil will do it. Uh, uh, You can get a product called Mound Ranch from Nature's Creation. Those are going to be much safer than gasoline. I've also heard people kill them with grits. I've heard lots of different things that uh, some people claim success with, but i go easy on the gasoline. That's uh, that, that's risking some things you don't want to risk. I hear you. Where do you get the orange oil? Any good nursery or any uh, probably any farm and ranch store or any good nursery or garden center. And it has a All wide right, range of uses. Everything. Yeah, it's, it's the best cleaner in the world. It... Uh, Oh, gosh, you can use it for a lot of different things. Uh, we actually made up a little list of all the different things and ways that we use orange oil, but uh, uh, it's it's very effective. Uh, it, it actually, what it does, it softens the exoskeleton on some hard-shelled insects like ants, and uh, then the bacteria are what kill them, but uh, it's almost instantaneous. All right. Well, I appreciate everything. Well, you get out and have a good Sunday, and we'll talk again, and I appreciate Thank the call. You. Thank you. Yep. All right. Uh, let's pause here, and I get to talk to you about another great man, and that is Dr. Mark Williamson. And Dr. Williamson and all of his staff want to remind you that on virtually every dental plan out there, your benefits go away the first of the year. Those benefits, you start all over again, and you're just you're just putting money down the drain if you need any kind of dental work, and uh, you need to get it scheduled. Uh, they still have some appointments available over at Dr. Williamson's office, and he just doesn't want you to see you lose those benefits on January 1st. Now, when it comes to a good dentist, you're just not going to find anybody more capable or more personable than Dr. Mark Williamson. He's just an incredibly talented man, broadly, broadly trained. It seems like the trend in dentistry today day is to oh sort of a corporate setup where if it's anything more than just cleaning and filling they're going to want to send you to a specialist who may be using uh, implants from overseas even from China that's not the way it works at Dr. Williamson's office everything he uses is american made he's not going to send you out i can't i can't think of a single dental specialty that mark williamson is not trained in and just so personable i mean it's none of this rushing you through he wants to know you he wants to know your oral health he wants to keep you in the absolute peak of health and he wants you to be comfortable too he still does sedation dentistry like uh, dr saffel pioneered but just uh it's it's not one size fits all you'll get individual personalized treatment from one of the best people you've ever met when you go talk to dr williamson easy to uh, give him a call too the number's 210-341-2569 that's 341-2569 but don't put it off don't lose those benefits as you've accumulated all year long those health saving plans and all they all disappear the first of january so if you need some dental help you need to go see dr williamson 341-2569 all right back to the phone lines and back to gardening we're going to talk to gary and gene and bill gary is up next good morning gary morning bob how are you off to a good start. It's uh, I love warm December days. I'm not complaining about this weather at all. Yes, sir. I could I could live year round in this weather. So yes, sir. A couple quick couple quick questions. Uh, I've got some. I think it's called land's ear, the stalky fuzzy plant. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got some of those growing. I, do those form a seed pod? Can I and can I plant those seeds? Is that feasible? Is this something you planted intentionally, or is this something that has just grown up in your landscape? Yes, it's just wild. 
Okay, that is probably actually a plant called mullein, M-U-L-L-E-I-N. And, uh, yeah, it will come up. It'll make a spike that's probably two feet tall. And then the, the kind of mother plant dies out. They don't live from year to year. But, uh, yes, you can plant the seed from it or just leave it in place, and it'll typically throw some seed around, and you can just dig up and transplant uh, the little seedlings. But, yeah, if you want to look, look it up, call it mullein. Uh, lamb's ear is actually a totally different uh, herbaceous plant that people plant, and it is pretty. It does live from year to year, but if it's just coming up wild in your landscape, it's mullein. Okay, I'll, I'll check that out. Uh, the second thing, I've, I've seen a lot of brightly colored trees. I, I, I think they are fragrant sumac. Is that familiar? It's probably what they call flame sumac. Um, just brilliant orange to almost maroon color. They tend to grow usually in kind of clumps, and they'll be somewhere between 6 and 10 feet tall. Is that what you're seeing? Yes, sir. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, look up, look up flame sumac is what you're looking at. Okay, can I do those have a seed pod? Can I do, plant those if I could find some seeds or? <laughs> you can actually they they do make some seed. I have uh, I have a longtime friend who's probably listening to us up in San Marcos saying, "Don't you plant that? Don't you plant that?" Because she's been trying to kill it out in her yard. And uh, it does tend to grow pretty easily. It does tend to spread with underground stems. It's absolutely beautiful out along the highway or out in a rural area, but it's probably not something you want to plant in the flower bed. Okay. Yeah, I have a. I was going to try to use that like a, a border bush or tree between my neighbor's house for some privacy. Yeah. Yeah, they, they do drop all of their leaves uh, in the fall months or winter months whenever, so it's not yeah, going to give yeah. you a real privacy hedge through the coldest part of the winter. But I don't know of any plant in Texas that uh, has more beautiful fall color consistently. Yeah, that's what attracted me. So. All right, well, I will look into those, and I appreciate your, your input on that. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure, Gary. I appreciate the call. Uh, next up is Gene. Good morning, Gene. Morning, Bob. Good morning. Hey. I just had a question. I got a cedar elm in my yard. I'm down in Divine. Okay. Um, I've got a, it was about 50 feet tall, and a tornado came right through my yard here a few months ago, and uh, it took the top of that tree, you know, it's real narrow mm-hmm. uh, forks, and like a mix master went down on top of it, just twisted <laughs> yes, it sir. around it, and, uh, uh, everything is this, all the stuff laying down is still uh, green and growing, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, I, I want to cut it off. If I did something like cut it off twenty feet off the ground, do you think it would sprout way up there? It certainly, you know, would sprout out, but kind of like cutting a crepe myrtle or something like that. You don't want to just cut it off at a random point, and um, I, you know, I don't necessarily want to see up in the top of a tree. But what an arborist would do is take a point where there is already a limb coming off to the side and is already starting to develop, cut it just above that point, and let the cedar elm put its effort into making a new trunk, or as arborists call it, a new central leader. If you just cut it flat off at a random point, you're going to have that little bird's nest of growth come out, and it's going to be weak, and it's going to be very, very unattractive. But where you've had damage further up, if you can, if you can follow the damage limb,
them down to the point that you have another smaller limb starting to branch out, growing the direction you want it to grow. Cut just above that point. Uh, the limb that you leave behind will, due to gravity and, and light and some other things, it will grow upwards and it will ultimately form a new trunk. But don't don't just cut off at some random point. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm going to try that. I didn't know. It's a beautiful tree. Oh, but yeah. Them, them forks in that tree, like you told everybody, they're so narrow, it just <laughs> split way down and... Uh, uh, okay, well, I'm not going to do it myself. I was just wondering about having somebody do it. Well, you can certainly have somebody do it. And, uh, yeah, it's it's the only real drawback to elms. And, and the cedar elms aren't as bad as the American elms, but... Uh, if you don't if you don't watch them when you have that you know that severe windstorm hopefully you won't see any more tornadoes but ice storms windstorms anything that really puts uh, stress on those narrow joints unfortunately you sometimes end up with a lot of it down on the ground so uh, glad it wasn't any worse than it was well i was in my barn in the middle of the night cuz that's the only safe place i had to go when i was hunkered down no power I was in my Kawasaki mule, so I'd had protection on my head, and it blew the whole door in on the front of that barn. <laughs> my God, scared me to death. Well, but I hey, tell you it, what, it, uh, I, it uh, yeah, we don't we don't see them that often in the hill country, but mine, you know, and I was I was in my upstairs bedroom with windows open, and it was a violent thunderstorm, and like I say, the power was out. And I'd always heard that, oh, if, you, if a tornado comes, it'll sound like a freight train or something like that. It did. Never it heard did. that kind of sound. But what I what I experienced, what I noticed that was different, was that it was a constant steady wind. It wasn't gusty like it typically is in a thunderstorm, but it was just a, a very, very strong wind. And um, I went out the next morning and... Uh, you know, I had insulation in my yard and everything else, and I thought, oh, wow, I must have lost a portion of my roof. Well, I figured out it wasn't mine. It was my neighbor's from half a mile away. So um, it's uh, it's just an unbelievably destructive force. And uh, oh, yeah. so, But I, I agree with you. I tell you what, it'll sure make you want to build yourself at least a little miniature storm shelter or dig yourself a nice hole in the ground to go crawl well, into because... In there. It was a strong, steady wind just kept blowing, and I watched that door come in and in and in, and finally it gave way to overhead door, you know. Yeah. Anyway, yep. uh, one other thing real quick. That freeze miser, I'm in the Carrizo, of course. It's hard as a rock out here. Mm-hmm. And uh, everything I got that I try to drip locks up before you know it because I have yep. to go back around and open it up more and more and more. Does that freeze mother you think adjust for that? You know, I will say that, I, yeah, I I did not have any problem. I put them, you know, my my home's 110 years, 15 years old, and my have the old hydrants <laughs> stick three feet up out of the ground, and I put freeze misers on my hydrants, and I did not experience any problem at all. It probably eight or ten times during the year. Uh, separate freeze events uh, were enough to start it dripping, and 
I didn't experience any problems with it. And uh, if you ever have a question about whether your freeze mines are still working, um, and I'm going to do this with mine, I don't think there'll be a problem. But you simply stick it in the freezer for a few minutes, then go out, put it on the hydrant, turn it on. There should be water would come through because the freeze miser thinks that it's really cold. And then as soon as it, you know, experiences a warm water, then it shuts off like it should. But uh, I can't imagine anybody that has much more limestone in their water than I do. Uh, I'm in the Upper Glenrose Aquifer, and um, it's, well, let's just say it <laughs> it turns to rot very quickly. But uh, my freeze misers functioned perfectly last winter. All right. All right. Well, I appreciate it, Bob. Thanks for your time. It's always a pleasure. You get out and have a good Sunday. I appreciate the call. Thank you. You too, sir. Bye-bye. Thank you. Fish sun to sun, now our work is done. We're hungry and thirsty and want to have fun. We wish you would clean our fish mist. We wish you would clean our fish mist. We wish you would clean our fish mist and bring us some beer. We I don't know how you do it, Don, but I, uh, yeah, that, that's a good one. We ought to make that our, our bumper music for the for the holiday season. That's uh, another good job. Mr. Don Cooper-Stevens is my engineer. The last break of the show on Sundays when he's engineering for me, we get a, a fishing song or a related song and another another good effort there looks like we'll finish up the show with uh, bill and gloria and robin and bill is up first good morning bill good morning bob morning sir say uh i was given a myers lemon plant and um the fellow that gave it to me said he had planted it from a seed Okay. It's about mm, 10 inches tall. Is that worth putting effort into, or how long will it be before I get some fruit from it? Probably about six or seven years. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. it's If he had given you a cutting, you could have fruit next year. But when you grow something from a seed, it has to go through a maturing process, just like an animal has to mature before it can reproduce. A plant has to mature before it can reproduce. And when we grow things from cuttings or when we graft them, since we're using mature wood, uh, it doesn't have to do all that over again. And you can have fruit almost immediately. But growing fruit trees of all sorts, whether it's a peach or a lemon tree, from a seed is an exercise in patience. And also, because just because a seed came from a Meyer lemon does not mean... Uh, that it's a Meyer lemon. It's not a Meyer lemon. It's a Meyer lemon hybrid because who knows, even if it was self-pollinated, it would have the potential to be substantially different from the parent. Now, chances are it would be a pretty good lemon, but uh, this is, you know, th this is a totally new tree, and it's going to take you about seven years to find out whether it's any good or not. So <laughs> no. if you're if you're young and patient, it's a fun thing to do. If not, go out and buy yourself a, either a, a cutting-grown or a grafted Myers lemon. Okay. Alrighty. Um, this doesn't have anything to do with plants. Just I'm just curious. Uh, a lot of people call them paper wasps. I've always called them yellow jackets. Yeah. And and uh, we had a we had a nest or have a nest. Uh, 
where we come into the gate to the yard and and uh it's fairly close to the gate and i said well you know i've always heard you leave them alone they'll leave you alone right so i just let them i just let them go and uh you know watching them that nest really grew there's quite a few of them on it mm-hmm. but all of a sudden they're gone mm-hmm. and i checked all my other uh nest and and they're they're there's no yellow jackets around that I can see. What, well, what, what they do is they will find a place, um, it may be under peeling bark on a tree, it may be between some, you know, uh, wood you know in a building but uh maybe inside of a fixture of some sort but they are seeking protection somewhere they get into attics but uh because they can freeze and die if it gets cold enough but this time of Mm -hmm. year they all disappear and they've just found the warmest spot that they can find uh real warm days in the winter sometimes you may see one or two of them emerge but chances are you're not going to see them show up until next spring uh, most of the ones that you know that were on there that are going to survive the winter, they're what we call mated queens, and each one of those that survive the winter can start its own whole new colony next spring. But you're looking at just the to- totally normal life cycle of what the yellow jacket does. Now, don't confuse it with this uh, ground hornet that looks kind of the same, no. but. Yeah, those yeah. are those are not nearly as nice to have around. But your paper wasp, like the yellow jacket, their main diet it consists of caterpillars. And if you've got those around, you'll never have webworms or other caterpillar problems. So I leave them alone unless they're just right in a place where I'm going to bump into them, as I did on my stairway this year and got about four stings on one hand. But uh, uh, a little comfrey took care of that. But no, you're you're a very good observer, and what you're seeing is totally normal. Well, I, you know, for the longest time, we had just very, very few, and now there's getting more and more. And uh, I noticed, well, this prompts another question. Um, on my queen's crown, there's just hundreds of honeybees. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it seems like uh, I'm seeing more and more honeybees now. So that's definitely a good thing. Well, that's a good thing, too, and it may or may not be more bees. It may just be that the queen's crown is the only thing that's in bloom, and it is a bee favorite. But uh, And you never know whether it's somebody has a hive around. could even be, you know, the, the dangerous Africanized bees. But when they're out foraging, they behave just like normal bees. But if you find mm-hmm. them in a stump or in a rotten tree or something like that, leave them alone because it's when you yeah. disturb the colony that they can become very aggressive. But when they're out foraging, they're no different than the European honeybee, and uh, it is a good sign. Good. Hey, um, when I mentioned my queen's crown, I remembered uh, we planted this this queen's crown probably about three years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, it never would bloom. And I was thinking about, well, you know, maybe pulling it out. Maybe we got male, and it's not going to bloom, and... But this year, it's just loaded with blooms. Do they have well, mature also? Yes, they. every plant that grows from a seed does. It's just not as long with Queen's Crown. And uh, so you probably just got a seedling plant. And I tell you, I'm going to let you go because I want to try to get Gloria and Robin yes, in here. So uh, let's talk to Gloria. Good morning, Gloria. Hi, how you doing? Doing well, thank you. First time caller, long time listener. I appreciate that. How can I help okay. today? I have a question about my tangerine tree. I have okay. um, what I see is branches coming from the backward part of the mm-hmm. tree 
about four of them. Is there any chance my the rest of the tree will form eventually, or should I just give up on it? And they're all coming out from the base? Yes. Do they have big thorns on them? Do they look different than the original foliage did? Uh, They have thorns on them. Okay, pretty good-sized thorns? Yes. Okay, that is the rootstock. That's not Uh your tangerine. So you have two choices, and one of them is certainly to get a new tree. The other would be next spring to re-graft that tree. Uh, What you have Uh is the rootstock coming out. If you have four big branches coming out, you could actually put four different varieties of citrus on there if you wanted to regraft it. But it's okay. not going to do anything on its own. It's never going to produce uh, good fruit or anything. So right. if you, the branches yeah, it, are brown in the front, so I don't yeah. know whether to cut it or what to do with it. You know. Well, I would definitely cut it back because those thorns will do some harm to you. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you for calling. Don't wait so long to do it again, Gloria. I look okay, forward to hearing from you. Day. You no, do. I listen every, every Saturday and Sunday. Thank you. You're Bye-bye. mighty kind, and I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, we'll finish show up with Robin. Good morning, Robin. Good morning. Good, Good morning, morning, Bob. I will make it real quick because I know I'm, we're running out of time. Two I minutes have, and ten seconds. Uh, a passion vine. It's a may, may pop. May pop. Mm-hmm. The purple, the purple flower. Yeah. And for the last two years, I've had lots of beautiful blooms on it. This year, rarely a bloom. And the vine is very healthy. I have my uh, Gulf Artillery uh, caterpillars all over it. Right. And it's even making fruit. I have some fruits on there. But very few flowers. What is going on? The severe winter last year set it back. Said did exactly the same thing to ours here at the nursery. You have had some flowers, although they didn't last long, because you couldn't have fruit without having the flowers. But every yeah. every passion vine that I have looked at, and this includes many different varieties of passion vines, they've all been very reluctant bloomers this year, and it's all just uh, from having had a real severe winter. Nothing you're doing or failing to do. And almost certainly we'll go back to its uh, good full production next year if we don't have another just horrible winter. Okay, thank you. That's wonderful information. I I'm, uh, look forward to next year. <laughs> <laughs> Very good, Robin. Well, I appreciate Thanks it. You get out and have a good Sunday. <laughs> And my puppy dog in there is very excited because Dr. Kirby's here now. And that means it's just about time for the show on your pet's health. So uh, if you've got a question for the good veterinarian, now would be a good time to make that call. I'll say thank you very much for joining us for gardening today. And uh remind you, it's uh, it sure is a pretty day out there to get some things done. Poinsettias are beautiful this year. If you shop a good independent nursery, check them out. They are so much prettier than anything you can see in the box stores or the grocery stores. They're some of the prettiest I have ever seen this year. So get out and look around. Lots and lots of Christmas cactus available, too. I think we got about 40 cases of it in yesterday. So if you're looking for fun holiday flowers, get out and visit your favorite local nursery. And uh, above all, have a great weekend. Have a safe Sunday. And join me again next weekend for more gardening.